0: podcast. The discomfort around the idea of doing nothing, I think, is worthy of investigation. 100%. Why wouldn't I go and hang out
1: in beautiful places around the world and beaches and just relax and just do something else and not be obsessed? And it is is—it's an obsession. My team know. It's a seven-day-a-week-everywhere-I-go obsession. Why? I... Hey,
0: everybody. Welcome to the podcast. So... I was in London this past spring, and I had the great opportunity of being a guest on a very popular podcast called Diary of a CEO, hosted by a young guy I'd never previously met called Stephen Bartlett. Now, I've been a guest on many, many podcasts, but this experience was different. And what stood out wasn't just the exceptional professionalism of his talented team or the high production values that have come to define this particular show and its rapid ascent to the top of the charts. It was actually Steven himself, who I found to be one of the most genuinely curious, kind, prepared, thoughtful, and intentional people I've ever met in this space. Steven pushed me to dimensions I never previously ventured in public conversation. So. When I found myself again in London last month, I jumped on the opportunity to return the favor. For the uninitiated, Stephen is the co-founder of Flight Story, a marketing and communications company that works with some of the world's most cutting-edge brands, as well as Third Web, a San Francisco-based software company, and the venture enterprise Flight Fund. He is the youngest ever host or co-host of Dragon's Den, UK's version of Shark Tank. He was included in Forbes' 30 Under 30 list. He's delivered talks for the UN, South by Southwest, and TEDx, and in just two years, he has upended the podcast world with Diary of a CEO, which sits steadily at number one on the UK podcast charts. But Stephen's formal bio fails to tell the story of how an outcast kid with very little means, who dropped out of university after just one lecture, would ultimately go on to become not only a wildly successful entrepreneur, a disruptor whose ongoing concerns generate hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, but also a genuine thought leader on everything from business and leadership to personal growth and well being. A few more things I want to say about Stephen before we get into it, but first, we're brought to you today by On. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite, and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Okay, Stephen Bartlett. In today's conversation, Stephen shares how his upbringing shaped the trajectory of his life, Interspersed with absolute gold on discipline, balancing ambition with self care, the power of intuition, the challenges of celebrity, the relationship between insecurity and ambition, and many other impactful lessons more fully fleshed out in Stephen's wonderful new book, aptly titled, You Guessed It Diary of a CEO the 33 laws of business and life. If you're new to Steven, you'll soon understand just how special he is. And if you're already a fan, I can fairly say that this is Steven as you've never before seen or heard him. If you're seeking deeper meaning and purpose in your work or in your life, you are in the right place because this one is likely to inspire, educate, and challenge you to think differently about success, about fulfillment, and it might just redefine your goals and relationship with ambition entirely. So here we go. This is me and Stephen Bartlett. Steven, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm feeling really, really good. I ask you that because that's how you typically begin all of your interviews. Mm. And I'm curious why you ask that question at the beginning of your interviews, particularly in light of this idea that you talk about in the new book around grabbing people's attention in the first five seconds because that question doesn't feel like an attention grabbing type of situation. So I
1: ask that question when I feel like the person sat in front of me might have a honest, important answer to that question. That bucks the trend of just giving a flippant, yeah, I'm good, thank you. And I also ask it because there's no amount of research that I could have done beforehand to understand how someone's truly feeling in that moment. How they're feeling in that moment then drives the rest of the conversation profoundly. And I've had instances where I've done days of research and I've walked in and sat with Simon Sinek and said, how are you feeling? And he's responded, I'm feeling really, really lonely right now. Mm -hmm. In that moment, all of the research goes out the window and the next two and a half hours are about loneliness. Mm. And so that's why I asked the question.
0: Yeah, I uh, watched your latest vlog last night and uh, a couple things uh, stuck out from that viewing experience. The first of which is the incredible amount of, of endurance that you bring to what you do, because in one day you did a public appearance in the morning, you then did three back-to-back interviews for diary of a CEO. I think I've only done three in a day once. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you have the energy to maintain focus for that extended period of time. And then you did a live event with Simon that night in front of 3000 people in which what you just referenced came up, this idea of him making the choice to be open and vulnerable in that moment and how that created a really unique and and meaningful conversation for that episode. Mm To answer your question then, in this moment, how I'm
1: feeling is I feel like I've overextended myself in my life. I feel like 12 months ago or six months ago, I must have said yes to too many things and not have been cognizant of the nature of my, the fact that my time is finite. Mm-hmm. And this is a constant battle I have in my life, which is my ambition is maybe exceeding my capacity, um, which I need to put into check because I pay the price for that. I end up having letting someone down somewhere and also therefore myself in the process. And right now where I'm at, I've definitely taken on too much stuff. Mm -hmm. So endurance is great. What we need is consistency and sustainability. We don't need intensity. Intensities may be useful in in spurts, but you can't maintain intensity for a consistent uh, enduring period of time. Nobody can without something falling by the
0: wayside that matters. Yeah, I think uh, if something is on the calendar, long enough into the distance, I'll almost always invariably say yes to it, yeah. <laughs> only to woe the day when when it arrives. And I'm constantly in that battle of trying to protect my time versus, uh, you know, how that meets up with the goals that I'm setting for myself and the people pleasing tendencies that that tend to creep up where I wanna be able to do right by my friends or, you know, kind of, fulfill uh, you know, a, a certain role that I'm privileged to hold right now. And I would imagine that you're uh, in a similar situation in, a, in just at a 10 X kind of volume. Yeah. Unfortunately so, fortunately and unfortunately so.
1: And I, the, the frame I try and apply to the decisions when I see something on my list, a request that comes in, is how would I feel if I had to do that tomorrow And that's the frame I should be applying which is how would I feel if I had to do that later on today or tomorrow because I fall under the same bias which is I defer it to a future Steve who I can't yet understand the circumstances of the day that he's currently in and by bringing it to today's Steve it kind of helps me filter out things against my values and intentions um and that whole frame generally I was talking about this last night to one of my friends of really being cognizant that when you wake up every day after spending eight of your as I talk about my first book, proverbial chips on sleep, mm-hmm. you have these 16 chips left and how you place those 16 chips on the roulette table of life is the center point of your influence on your own life. The, the allocation of those 16 chips on this proverbial roulette table of life. And when the, the wheel spins every day, you find out the returns you've got. So these 16 chips, how do I place them? And what are my values? And you're trying to place them where your values are. And if you, if you land on, your values, you get great returns. So placing two against spending time with my girlfriend in the okay. evening, placing four against my podcast, four against my businesses, two against DJing, one against Jim. That's, a, that's time I'll spend. And I might also, it's important to say this, I might place one against binging Netflix. Mm-hmm. If it was intentional, it's not wasted time. It's only wasted time in my regard when you, you didn't do it consciously and intentionally. Um, and that framework is so important because if you look at anyone's how we allocate our time, it's so clear we think we're going to live forever. It's why on all of my desks, on my bookshelf behind me, on the Diary of a CEO, I have this sand timer because I don't believe humans can imagine infinity or finality. I don't think we're capable of such a thing. So we we allocate our time in. Um, trivial, regrettable ways, but our time is literally the currency we have. The allocation of my time up until this moment where I'm sat with you today is the thing that has put me in this chair today. It's like well allocated time in my regard because Mm -hmm. I managed to get, you know, to have a conversation with you. So thinking through that that framework and reminding myself that, you know, time is so so precious and so finite um, allows you to hopefully make decisions about you what you're doing with your day that are unregrettable, which is mm-hmm. my goal at the moment,
0: yeah. I think it it requires or it it demands a certain um type of discipline that might not be immediately obvious because when we think about discipline, we think about you know how hard can we work or how can we make that hard choice to delay gratification? But discipline, comes in many forms. I think the chapter in the new book about discipline, you come up with this equation right? <laughs> about that, which kind of speaks to uh, you know, what you just mentioned. Yeah, and um, you're so right because
1: when I was starting in my career when I'm 18, dropped out of university and I I want to be successful. In my brain, I want to be rich and I'm going to be honest, I want to be rich and successful. In the first page of my diary when I'm 18, shoplifting pizzas, my diary says, and I've uploaded this to the internet, I want a Range Rover Sport as my first car. Um, I'll have a million before I'm 25. I'll have a girlfriend and a six pack. Th- that was my North Star in life. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, I say yes to everything. Anyone wants to meet me for anything, I'm saying yes. As you become more successful, you need to invert that framework and start saying no to most things. And even where I am now, there'll be things that come across my desk, which are um, tempting my insecurities. Do you wanna go to a Vogue party? Do you wanna go walk the red carpet, at the Oppenheimer premiere? These are all things in the last, um, do you wanna go meet the king at the at the palace? You'll be there for six hours, you'll network drink champagne and meet the king. These are all things that I've had to contend with and all things I've had to say no to. Be- because of they don't, mm-hmm. at no in no way do they, bring me closer to the life and the person I wanna become. Going back to this discipline equation thing that I was writing about in the book, I actually, the title of that law in my book was about time. It was about time management. I started out to write about time management because everyone wants time management techniques. And as I go down there, and as I start doing my research on time management techniques, I discover there are hundreds, right? And I also, if I'm honest with myself, there's none that I use. So I ask myself why? And in the same way that there's lots of fad diets, Um, out there. The reason why there's so many time management techniques is because none of them fundamentally work. So people keep going in search of new ones and creating new ones because they lack the fundamental um, skill of discipline. So I asked myself, okay, um, why does discipline matter? Well, in a world where time is finite, as we've just discussed, you can only do so many things. And so I try and figure out why in some areas of my life I've been disciplined, with the gym, six, mm-hmm. seven days a week, with DJing, with my businesses and why in other areas of my life, has my discipline lapsed? So I tried to write a simple equation um, which is, and I'd love to in- you, you to interrogate this with me because I'm still you know, trying to refine the equation. But at the start of the equation you have in simple terms, um, why does the goal matter to you, right? Plus the psychological enjoyment you get in the pursuit of the goal minus let's call it the psychological um, disengagement or the psychological friction associated with the goal. So with going to the gym, I started going in the it, on March, 2020, and I've been going for over three years now. March, 2020, I watched a pandemic sweep the world and I watched through my TV screen, people dying because of their health circumstances and the correlation between outcomes and your health circumstance. It was so traumatic to me that it increased my why to to so much so that the habit stuck. And it was so clear to me now that the foundation of all my goals, my businesses, my girlfriend, my relationship, my dog, my family was my health. I saw the tectonic plate shake um underneath everything I care about. Um, The pursuit itself of going to the gym is psychologically enjoyable as long as the gym is close and as long as um, it's private. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm not spending a lot of time just talking about the podcast with people, um, minus the friction associated to it. So reducing the friction means me finding a private gym. I actually stopped going to the gym when my uh, when people knew who I was because I people came up to me a lot, yeah. the friction increased. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Simon Sinek challenged this the other day with me and he goes, well, you know, like I get up every morning and I go and empty the bin outside my house because he goes I don't enjoy that it's not meaningful to me. I go yeah but it is Simon because what happens if you so if we examine that through that framework what happens if you don't empty the bin outside your house Simon well you're going to get fined and it's going to overflow for the whole week so your why is actually pretty high the enjoyment is low and the friction is high but the why is higher than the friction is getting out of bed at 8am. It matters more to you the why the pursuit you know achieving that goal then the um, friction is unmotivating for you. If at some point they reduced the why, so you would no longer get fines and you had a second bin, you wouldn't get out of bed, the friction would win out. And so the reason it's important to think through that framework is you can influence it. If, you, if there's something in your life where you're not disciplined, you can focus on those first that first half of the equation. Remind yourself why this really, really matters to you, and then do everything you can to make the pursuit of the goal as enjoyable and as engaging as you can. Mm-hmm. When, when I started learning to DJ, the game changer for me was moving the DJ equipment, down to my kitchen table and saying to my girlfriend, I'm so sorry, babe, for for the next 12 months, please can I have all of my DJ equipment always plugged in with one button I flick to start it? Because when it takes 20 minutes and it's in the spare room, it's too much faff and, you know, confusion to get it set up.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's basically about creating systems that are conducive to the choice you wanna make being the convenient and easy to access choice. Um, It reminds me of uh, conversations I've had with Dan Buettner, the the Blue Zones guy. Mm -hmm. He goes into cities and meets with uh, councilmen and mayors and they're all about how do you create a healthier population. And instead of shaming people around their habits or trying to influence them to eat better or to ride their bikes to work, you have to create uh, a, a sort of city architecture that drives people in the right direction to make that choice. So, you create bike paths and you create financial incentives to make those choices. And you remove the vending machines out of the schools yes. and the city offices so that that unhealthy choice becomes the friction, to your point, becomes a little bit too much. And the healthier, easier choice just creates, uh, it, it, it creates like an easy, open kind of revolving door towards that. Exactly. And it's the same in companies. You know, I, I've
1: Spent ten years working with CEOs and companies, and they'll write on the on the wall of the the office, "innovate," or they'll write these cliches and these platitudes like "fail faster." I also went undercover in a school four years ago, uh, no, about seven years ago, on a TV show, um, and I went in there as an expelled student with a bias that teachers are just not good at their jobs, or maybe they don't care because I was kicked out of school. Mm-hmm. And when I saw the incentive structure, and the headmaster sat me down and said, "By the way, the reason why we..." push kids to get grades in subjects they don't like, is because the amount of kids that walk through the, the door every year determines how much money the government give us. That decision is made by the league table, So the parents are looking at the league tables and deciding if they should send their kids here. And the league tables are determined by the grades you get in these subjects. So the incentive structure in a school isn't, let's find out what Rich Roll cares about, or why is Stephen spending mm-hmm. all of his time starting these businesses at 13 years old? Let's nurture that. It's he, We have to get him a grade in this subject he hates. Or I watched Mrs. Clowney have to pay out of her own pocket to buy the pencils and the footballs and the notepads for class because they, they were 50% under capacity. And in organizations, CEOs go innovate. But when you look at job descriptions, the job description is do your job. Do not take a risk. Right. And so if you want to cause innovation in an organization, focus on
0: incentive structures. And that's what I do in my own life. I focus on my incentive structures. That point is made very clearly in the book, uh, especially with the team, kind of section here, how you empower people, how you try to get the, extract the best, most creative work by um, fostering a culture of experimentation, risk-taking, failure, all these sorts of things. Um, But I wanna get back to this idea of discipline and tying your discipline to a value structure, removing the friction. I think these are all great ideas, Mm -hmm. but when I reflect on how you meet out discipline in your own life, I suspect that you're somebody for whom uh, you know, things like hard work, uh, taking risks, managing people, like these are all disciplines that you've mastered, but they're almost second nature. In other words, I guess what I'm saying is, I'm not sure that they require a tremendous amount of discipline or motivation on your part. <laughs> so I'm curious around the habits or the buckets in your life that are demanding of your discipline but which you still struggle.
1: Yeah, I would say that working out is still one of them, going to the gym is still one of them in the context of everything else that did you look at my biceps. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, you're looking good, Dan. Yeah, and I know when you a were in struggle. LA you were you were like, you know, sharing stuff when you were at the gym and
1: Yeah, know, you... I, in LA I had a, a strong routine, but it's still a struggle because in the context of that day you saw that you have referenced in my vlog, when mm-hmm. can I've gone to the gym? Yeah, I don't I don't know that. It happened that day. It did at 11.30 at night, but Mm. it was a a 10 minute workout. So Simon invited me to the after party. I I showed face at the after party for 10 minutes, maybe Mm. less. And then I slipped out the back door and went. my driver dropped me at the gym and I did a 10 minute workout. What's important for me there is that I, although it wasn't a good workout, I I kept my obligation with myself, my own self story. Mm -hmm. Um, That's something I continue to struggle with. And again, it comes back to um, overextending myself in terms of my calendar. And I have conversations with myself all the time. It's literally a, a mental dialogue, which is... a conversation about who I, who I am and who I want to be, and how the person that I want to be would be behaving at 11.30 at night, on this particular night. Mm. What would he do? And it's so interesting, that's why I talk about the self story a lot, because no, no one's gonna know. No one's gonna know if I went to the gym. There's gonna be no evidence or results based on that 10-minute workout but it's purely a story and a conversation that I have with myself. And we all have a story about ourselves that we don't know is governing our lives. And if I didn't go then, it writes a new little line into my self-story about the person I am. And it's a line in my story that I don't want. And um, having spoken to a lot of professional athletes and such, I I was able to identify that this those stories govern their lives when things are hardest, the most hard. And my, the gym thing is a difficult thing for me at the moment because I'm going, I went yesterday, I had to go at 2 p.m. just after I met, bumped into you in the street mm-hmm. actually, just before, um, but I struggle with that. But I, fi- I fight to get back on the horse every week.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think there's something deeper around that, which is the self-esteem that you cultivate when you are living your life in integrity with your values. And if you establish that as a key value, uh, this is who I am, I'm somebody who works out and you show up for that in yourself when your head hits the pillow that night, you feel good about yourself, even if it was a 10 minute workout Mm -hmm. because you are true to your own word. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and I allocated the time against my values. You mentioned story, story as a whole section in your new book as well, the importance of um, understanding story, how to tell a story and uh, and being connected to the story that you tell yourself about who you are and the story that you're sharing with the world. So if I was to ask you, you're an individual, but you're also a public person, and on that level, it you know, as as cringy as it sounds, you are kind of a brand, right? Like, what is the story? of you, like how do you articulate what that story is? I have never really tried
1: to articulate what that story is, I think that... That's so interesting given how much importance you place yeah, on this it's, idea. It's really interesting because I know that um, the story of me exists in everyone's life who experiences me and it's a completely different story for them, what I, the thing that I, the controllable to influence that story is my actions. So. It was funny, I just had my hair cut before I came here. My barber was cutting my hair and he says, oh man, people walk into the shop every day, they're always talking about you. Some people are saying this about you. Some people are saying this about you. Some people really like you. Some people don't like you. Some people don't understand you. They're not sure if you're black enough. They're not sure if you're this. And I was just thinking um, to myself as he was saying that, there's this part of you that wants to jump to control that. Maybe I'll start being more black. Maybe I'll start doing this. Maybe I'll start, you know. And then there's this other part that knows I'll never be able to control that. But The controllable is I've got to keep... Doing myself justice and proud, and then um, from that, everyone will write their own story. Some people that will be inspiration. Some it will be something else. But I've never, I've never sat down and tried to like articulate the story of me. I'm an entrepreneur. I think I'm a creative more than I probably let on, because um, I'm because I think about the work that I do and it's the creative stuff. Um, and I'm someone that believes a lot in themselves and. Really wants others to believe in themselves more, so they can get close to their potential. Mm-hmm. That's maybe
0: my story, but I don't think about it. I want to uh, double click on the self belief piece uh, in a minute, but but before we get there, I was thinking to myself in preparing for this, like, what is it about this guy that's so interesting and compelling, and that 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 has him sort of standing out from the crowd in in who he is and what he does, and I'm sure there's a number of of reasons or things that I could identify. But the thing that really I think my brain hones in on is this notion or this innate capacity, maybe it's a gift that you have, or maybe it's a discipline to come across wisdom, to learn things, which a lot of us can do, but it's your ability to then apply these things to your life. You're so young and so accomplished at such a young age And I see somebody who who identifies a good idea and then is able to incorporate that into his life and produce returns as a result of it. Whereas most people I think really struggle with this. We can all read books, we listen to podcasts, we're we're on the receiving end of, of good ideas quite frequently, but until we reach a certain pain point or crisis point in our life, we're very resistant to habit change. And to me, from the outside looking in at you, you seem to have figured out a way to remove that resistance and and kind of lean into habit change with a little more ease or, or facility. It's interesting, mm. such an interesting observation. I, one of the
1: things I've noticed about myself is I'm not good at overstaying my welcome in situations where I don't feel good. And I, I'm also someone that um, doesn't, that often sees the thing you would consider a risk. I see that as the, easy choice and um, I see the thing people call the risk in my life as um, yeah, the easy choice and I see the the risk. So I'm really referring to key moments in my life where I've quit stuff. Mm -hmm. I look at myself at um, 18 years old going to that lecture and really hating it and deciding that I'd never go back and I didn't go. You did one lecture lecture. at business school at university and said that was it. To me, the risk was staying. But every interview I do, they say, oh, you've missed so much courage. And I think the courage was staying in a situation where I didn't feel good. And then my mum calling me and saying, I won't speak to you ever again if, if you don't go back to university. And me being like, that's okay, she'll be fine. And that ease of moving away from situations that don't serve me and towards situations where I just feel good inside, which is this, I can't believe the world ignores it. We all have this like compass, this, this thing built inside us, which is how do you feel? And it's so low on our on our order of signals or voices that we tune into, which makes no sense to me. Everyone's, you know, like, above that people rank their mother's opinion, the girl on Instagram that didn't like my nails. And for me, the most important, number one, is how do I feel? And when you apply that at a very young age, where you can gracefully move away from school at 14 years old and then get expelled, they actually unexpelled me because I was making them so much money. That's what my headmaster said on TV, and it's true. To university, don't like it there, built a startup for two years investors, all of that quit out of the blue. My, second, my third company quit out of the blue again. If you can gracefully use that signal inside you, which is how do you feel in this situation and prioritize that, I think you get closer and fast. It takes less time for you to get to the life you want. And I'm so good at quitting. It, like my last company, we were, we were about to uplist onto the, the second, a very large stock exchange. And I quit because I just didn't feel good anymore. And it wasn't a difficult decision for me. And if you think about what I left on the table in terms of monetary value, huge. It makes no sense as to why I quit. There was no branch I was swinging to. Just don't wanna be here anymore. And that framework for life creates the impression that you're very good at, I don't know, discipline or making decisions or whatever it might be. But for me, it's,
0: I don't know why people hang around in situations um, so long. But you do, you do know why. I think that that authentic voice within all of us, you can call it your gut instinct or your intuition, is certainly uh, you know a capacity that we all hold. But it gets worn down through social expectations, through societal expectations, through familial obligation um, and and just the confusing aspects of of what it means to grow up and try to figure out your place in the world. And I think uh, you know with that we we tend to repress that instinct. and mm-hmm. for some reason, you were able to maintain it. Perhaps it's a in some people, it's that childlike nature in other in others, it's just a, a real strong sense of identity or an antenna for what serves you and and what doesn't. Um, but I think it's 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 something that you've protected, but it's something that uh, if left to our own devices and and without proper boundaries, gets eroded, yeah, and it's
1: it's a signal like hunger or thirst is a signal that it's deep inside you and it's there for a reason. It's a signal, a really important signal that's hardwired into you for, from generation and generation and generation, like hunger and thirst is, or you touch something and it's hot. So I pay attention
0: to that signal last night. But why, how are you able to do that? Like, I just know never let me I down. only have my own experience. Yeah. And, and I didn't really begin to connect with that until I was in my late thirties mm-hmm. and early forties. No one ever said to me like, what is it that you wanna do? What's important to you? What makes you feel alive? Is there a way for you to feed that or fuel that or honor that at least? That's not part of our education system. It wasn't really the way that I was raised to no fault of anybody, Mm -hmm. um, perhaps mostly to my own fault for not respecting it, but that facility to appreciate and respect that signal within yourself, I think, um, is, is almost uh, an act of, of rebellion or, you know what I mean? Yeah, I completely know what you mean. And I think this comes back to the one
1: skill that I think I have. In the, when I do an audit of how I came here versus my brothers who are just these two super geniuses, both older than me, super mm. geniuses. One's a mathlete, LSE Cambridge, whatever, geniuses. Then there's me. The thing that I have, which is clearly different from them, I'm not smart, they're, they're, they're smart. Right? They, you are who, smart, though. I'm smart in a different way. If you, if you gave me a GCSE, which is the, the, the grading system we have in the UK, I'm so low on, on those scores at 16 years old, is self-belief. And I know this is, it sounds kind of cliche to say self-belief, but at 10 years old, my parents stopped being parents, basically. So I'm the youngest of four. They raised the other three, and when you get to the fourth one, you think, "Oh, kind of, we've done it." Yeah. And he's kind—I mean, she, she's twenty-three, twenty-one, eighteen. He's ten, but he's kind of, you know. And they stopped coming home, so my mum would sleep in the back room of her shop on a bag of rice. And I remember going to the shop and seeing that it had loads of bite marks in it, and going, "Why is it? she goes? Oh, there's rats here. I sleep here because I'm being racially abused, and people break in at night. So if I sleep in the shop, they're less likely to break in." My dad would then leave his job, go to her corner shop, and then in the evenings she would go to her restaurant, right?
0: None of these businesses ever did any, well, mm-hmm. they will. Yeah, your, accru- mom, your mom was a serial entrepreneur of yeah, sorts, She still right? is a startup <laughs> but entrepreneur. Suffered from know. lack of focus, yes. perhaps. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she
1: didn't get an education in Africa. She left a school at seven years old or something, five or seven years old, didn't know how to read, didn't know how to write, moved to the UK. I, I don't think she still knows how to read and write. Um, so she was starting these businesses. They weren't going well. My dad was leaving his full-time job and going straight to her um, and I was 10 and they forgot I was 10. So, at that age, I could leave the house for two days and I could do what I want. And they genuinely, there was no repercussions and they wouldn't know I'd left. And what happens there when you've got a kid who's the only black kid in an all white area and with a poor family, he's desperate to fit in and to have stuff. And you've given him this whole void of independence. You've given him all of this space to conduct experiments about life. Those experiments lead to failure and the failure leads to feedback and the feedback is knowledge and the knowledge is power. So uh, the, the thing I look up with myself is I got to conduct experiments at 10 years old about the nature of what I'm capable mm-hmm. of, whether it was selling the cigar, cigars my mum had bought from Nigeria all around the city and raising loads of money, or at 12 years old going to my dad, I, I need 50 quid because I've organized this event, 2000 um, under 18s are coming at this nightclub and they need me to pay a deposit, they think I'm 18. Can I borrow 50 quid? I'll come back. Then coming back the next day with a bag of money and reaching into it and giving my dad his deposit back and going upstairs with this huge bag of money. I was conducting these experiments at a young age. They're all reinforcing this thing we call belief. Belief is evidence. It is it is subjective evidence you've chosen to believe about yourself. So that as a t- macro tailwind in my sales th- from 10 to now, creates, creates somebody who will look at obstacles and look at how they approach things And have a huge optimism bias. Mm. I believe I can do it." And that is positively reinforcing upwards. We're all in a self-belief spiral upwards or downwards. Some people are negatively reinforcing, and what I mean by that is they're approaching the challenge at work of speaking on stage with um, skepticism and fear, therefore they show up badly. And even if they do a good job, because of that frame, they interpret they did a bad job, which erodes their self-esteem. Which means next time they show up with even more pessimism, if they even raise their hand to, to show up, and it's this downward spiral. Since 10 I've been on the opposite, I've been on the upward spiral. Tried something, could be that the business I started at 10 or 12 years old, it went well, which which meant that next time I showed up with more optimism and belief, which meant it was more likely to go well and even if it didn't I interpreted it well. And since 10 I've been like that. And from that has I've accrued a lot of knowledge because I've been failing fast.
0: I'm super proud to announce but it's also a choice. You could have crafted an entirely different negative spiral narrative about your upbringing and your parents who were always arguing and the grass that was never mowed in your front lawn and the refrigerators that were accumulating and being the only black kid. And I mean, there's a whole story there that you could have nurtured around who you are and what you're capable of. So at some level, you make this choice to, to invest in the upward spiral narrative around your own capacity. So how do you, is that, is that was that something that was conscious? Is that its own discipline or is that a preset default setting for you? I would love to say it was
1: intentional and conscious, but I think we're all trying to find ways to survive when we're young. And you have two ways you can survive one of the routes to survive in that context might be to fall back and fall out of the situations I was in. where mm-hmm. I'm, I just remember this constant feeling of like shame and insecurity, and I need to be enough, and I was chemically relaxing my hair to make it straight, like my white friends, and I was like stealing things so I could have the same shoes that they had. That was my way of survival. It was, I will find a way, I will use that energy of shame, and that motivator of shame, which Will Smith, I've heard him talk about before, and I will direct it towards fitting in at
0: all costs and that was my my way and i'm probably still mm-hmm. doing that at some level mm-hmm. yeah so, that was my question is 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 shame still a fuel for you it's, it's not a, it's not a it's not a great
1: fuel source it's not a great fuel source because you you end up aiming at the wrong things and when you get those things they like they're like mirages that just disappear in your hand as you grab them mm-hmm. and you realize that that was not the thing there was nothing actually there um uh, a void you cannot fill so shame is 100% still a motivator in my life i i, I always try and be as aware of this as I can be, so I don't end up in the wrong place, but I know it is because, because sometimes I end up using the wrong metrics to understand whether I'm doing well, you know? Talk a little bit more about it's, that. It's all like the comparative metrics, right? Like I've done a really good job over the last two years to move away from caring about these comparative metrics, but um, why, do I care about, why do I care about being successful or being seen as successful? Why do I care about that? It doesn't matter. What matters is the, the impact our work is having. And outside of, I've got financial freedom now. So why do I care about what people um, might think of me being successful? I'd say that's a that's a, there's a percentage of that still there in me. Um, that comes from the school situation where I just wanted to fit in. You know, had a
0: lot. So. Well, uh, impressions, social metrics have replaced the the luxury brands and the fancy car as a a marker of status, mm-hmm. and it's a highly addictive drug. You're very good at it, and you're very successful at it. Um, but even the best of us are are are, are hard pressed to you know resist the lure mm-hmm. of what those numbers mean. Mm-hmm. And I know this has been a struggle for you. I am interested a little bit more in the relationship between that and shame, because I think you are somebody who learned early the false promise of some of the material world's uh, you know, kind of lures, so mm-hmm. to speak, uh, and, and did a pretty good job of right-sizing yourself around the true value of, the mansion or the, you know, the Ferrari or whatever it is. Uh, But dangling right in front of your eyes is subscriber counts and um, how many people, you know, rankings for your podcast and Mm -hmm. the like, which is something that I struggle with as well.
1: I sat down with a wonderful gentleman who had written a book about status. And at this point in my life, I don't have um, designer things per se you know don't have the rolexes don't have flashy stuff really the most flashy thing in my life is the i have a driver who drives me in this mercedes mm-hmm. van and inside it it's really I've nice i've been in the van oh you've been, Thank you, in you that's okay. right yeah. yes you
0: were very yeah. gracious to take me to a, oh, yeah. a premier league game last yeah, yeah, was here right so <laughs> so i got i had i had the privilege of riding in that <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you've seen here. it so yeah. that's the, so i thought to myself
1: before i spoke to him that i'm not playing status games anymore mm-hmm. and what he pointed out to me is um, when we don't have a lot of money, the logos are really big. And then we have, when we're it, it, more sort of um, successful in our lives, the logos shrink, and we start playing different games. So, billionaires, it's all about the size of the boat. Mm-hmm. But They'll never wear like head to toe Louis Vuitton. No, no, or no. If
0: you go to Nantucket, everybody's driving kind of an old car yeah. you know, or what, you know what I mean? It's But that doesn't mean that the status game has been erased. It's yeah. just displaced. To, with a different yeah, game. yeah, yeah, yeah. And San Francisco, they're all driving Teslas,
1: mm-hmm. but it's all about either their fund size or the startup that they're building. Um, so that made me really aware that I'm, I'm still playing status games, but it's a different type of game. And that actually, if I was to walk in here, head to toe Louis Vuitton, it would actually be like a counter signal to the status game I'm playing because the people in my status game now would think of me worse. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> and, and he said to me- You're still in the mousetrap though, <laughs> yeah. or the maze. And, we, and he said to me, we all are. Because status really, really mattered for survival throughout human history. So we're all playing status games. It matters to all of us that we fit, fit in. Cancel culture and rejection, all of these things hurt so badly because they are a prehistoric signal that we're being kicked out of our tribe. And back in the day, if we were kicked out of our tribes, we would die. Our bodies change physiologically. We fall into this, this mode called self-preservation when we feel an ounce of rejection. We sleep worse. We go into higher um, higher stress, more alertness. Because in a tribe, the great thing is there's so many people that you can relax. You're all looking out for each other. You have different chronotypes. You're sleeping at slightly different times, more eyes and ears. When you're on your own, you don't have that. So the, you you live it's almost a decade less long and you're all your whole physiology changes. So when you get a metric changes, it's like the equivalent of the the modern day, you see one of your metrics dipping down. It's in some ways, a signal of rejection that you're being kicked out of the tribe at a deeper level. And you get a similar response oftentimes. Um, Or if someone's commenting badly on one of your photos, even if you've got a 1000 positive comments, that one or two negative ones are they trigger that sort of, you know, that innate sense of rejection, and all of the feelings it makes us feel about ourselves. So managing that has Mm. for me been closing my context down Mm -hmm. completely, which is like, if you tweet me, I won't see it. If, you know, don't search your name, don't um, look at your comments as much as you can, especially on like, you know, like a cesspit Mm -hmm. cesspit apps, we know the ones, Yes, and keep your context super small.
0: That's Mm. really, really helped in my life. Mm -hmm. But it's also putting the lie to the whole notion that your status is correlated with any of those things, truly, right? Like, can you transcend? I mean, I'm sure some people can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't believe I will in my life. As somebody who's so good at learning something and yeah. applying it, the friction there with, with uh, you know, still struggling with that, I just, I think speaks to just how powerful these things are in controlling our decisions, our lives, and our time management.
1: I used to believe that my body was against me in so many ways. I used to believe that it it was fighting me, trying to lose weight, trying not to eat sugar. Um, trying to not to procrastinate, um, trying not to care what people think, all of these things. And if you change the frame from, why won't my body let me do these things that I wanna do in the case of status? Why will not it let me stop playing st- status games or stop having the cookie at 11, 11 o'clock at night? When you look at the body and what it's doing is it's trying to keep you alive. And if you look at it through that frame, your body is on your side. And then if you look at it through that frame, status games are a survival thing, The sugar, I don't know, 10,000 years ago, would have kept you alive if you came across it. It wasn't so abundant. We didn't Mm -hmm. have fridges and these things. So your body isn't against you. It's doing everything it can to keep you alive. Weight loss, I sat with weight loss experts, and they all said to me, "Your, your body doesn't want you to lose weight because your weight actually correlated to how long you have left to live once upon a time. If you had more weight, you had longer to live. And if you were skinny, when we didn't have an abundance of food, you had less time to live. So it tries to defend your weight. At all costs. So, your body is on your side, um, status games are innately human, as is all these sort of diet and discipline related habits that we can't break. That frame is helpful. Because yeah,
0: I think it's also about agency, right? Are these things controlling you yeah. or are you driving them? And I think to extend your example, you can also think of all of your character defects and defense mechanisms, all your, your psychological framework. Similarly, I don't know if you've had, have you had Richard Schwartz on? No. So he has this, he's a, a psychologist um, with a modality called internal family systems. Oh, I've heard of it. Um, yeah, IFS, which is the idea that, that all of these, we're all a multiplicity of personalities. Mm-hmm. And when we feel that instinct to lash out or we're resentful or fearful, these are all just pieces of ourselves that were designed to protect us in the same way, you know, sort of, uh, you know, maintaining fat around the belly mm-hmm. um, serves us in that regard. And understanding those impulses and and why we created them for ourselves becomes very powerful in in um, learning how to um, act in contrast to them. And to have empathy for yourself. Yeah,
1: I think, yeah, that's the big piece too, right? To not think you're useless and right. you've got no discipline and you're lazy and why
0: can't I stop eating that thing? Or why can't I stop playing this status, status game? In um, terms of your own empathy for yourself, you mentioned shame, but when you reflect upon your childhood, I also hear uh, quite a bit of gratitude. Like oh, you are yeah. the way you are despite some dysfunction and whatever trauma you, you, you experienced at that time. Clearly these things made you who you are 100%. I didn't enjoy it at the time, but I wouldn't
1: change any of it. Now That might be some, you know, survivorship bias or whatever they call mm-hmm. it, because I'm happy with where I am now. But I'm well aware that you change my circumstances even slightly. And I'm, I don't have a life that I'm happy with today. I reflect on my best friends from that time. None of them of my best friends have left the city. None of them are in situations where they are happy. My mother did a fantastic, brilliant job of insulating us with very, very harsh discipline that I couldn't even tell you about because you'd think it was inhumane or something. Um, But keeping us focused, we couldn't swear. She couldn't read or write, bear in mind, but she would get encyclopedias off the shelf. My dad was working um, in London, which is like, what, four hour round trip away, for five days a week. So this is this Nigerian woman raising four children in a house. She would get, that, that can't read or write. And she ended up raising a lawyer uh, uh, and like a super genius mathematician. I went to Cambridge and my brother, who's even smarter than all of us. Mm. And then me, Mm. she'd get encyclopedias and put them in front of us and say, copy from here to here to the end. Wow! And I'd copy them and then call my dad in London and say, dad, I just learned a new word, important. Her discipline um, in those early years is, is profound. And Watching her sleep on that bag of rice taught me that hard work is not something you complain about. Like, my mum never complained. It's something I always reflect on. Her life was like no one's life I've ever seen. She worked from the minute she woke up to the the minute she fell asleep. And she didn't once say, I'm tired. She didn't once complain. It was, and that maybe speaks to where Mm -hmm. she's come from and what she watched with her mother on Mm -hmm. those stalls in Africa. That was so deeply ingrained in me that I almost find it hard to resonate with people who have a pessimism bias because of that. I never saw it. And what's your relationship like with her now? Um, It's been on a journey. It's been on a really interesting journey where when I was 18, 19, I was trying to intervene with her businesses and give her advice and she would never listen to me. Now she listens a lot more because my life um, has gone well in the business context. She never wanted me to be in business, as you can tell from that phone call, Mm -hmm. where she disowned me. Um, And I think she's still struggling with being in this country, far away from home, and being deeply misunderstood. And as I've grown up, I've come to learn about the racism she was telling me about when I was younger that I could never believe. Now I understand it. I understand what she was going through, being a Nigerian woman in the UK in 1992, in not just the UK, but in the countryside of the UK. We're talking four hours that way, Mm -hmm. you know, where everyone is white. I can understand what she was going through and I think she's still suffering with the repercussions of that racism she experienced. We we're not super close. I'm close to the rest of my family, but um we we talk.
0: Yeah. Mm. What would, what would have to happen to bridge that intimacy gap with her? What is the barrier there? You know what it is. I I
1: I think I've this might be because I'm mixed race or because she came from Nigeria and I grew up in the UK. It's how do we relate to each other, you know? This is not, she doesn't know what the internet, like understand the internet. Mm-hmm. She doesn't understand what I do, you know? She's seen me on the TV doing Dragon's Den, but it's trying to find that bridge that we can meet on uh, and connect on, uh, which we, I've always struggled with. And I've actually always struggled with it with my dad as well. Like, I don't know what we talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't, they don't know me that we've never, I call them by their first names. I always have since I was a kid, never called them mum and dad ever in my life. Not once ever. What is that about? I don't know, I don't know, I I hear- Your siblings do the same? Yeah, we all do the same. We call them by their first names and we always have. Yeah, that's wild. My mum apparently said when we were younger, she wanted us to be more like her friends than her children. So she, and I think it maybe she didn't wanna feel old. So we always called
0: her by her first name. But do you feel like you need your mom to understand what you do. No. So if you can liberate yourself, if you're liberated from that, can't you just meet her with compassion and a lack of expectations? When we, when we have our phone calls, the phone calls are my mom
1: talking about her world for 30 minutes and what's been going on in her day. And then that's the end of the call. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I don't have a desire to share. Yeah, it's there's no room in that conversation yeah. for me to say anything. <laughs> I understand. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So I, <laughs> I mean, I'm not asked. Uh-huh. Right, but, I mean, she might ask about my my girlfriend now, but outside of that, there's no nothing about me in that call. It's about mm-hmm. she wants to tell me stuff. Yeah, and then the fo- fo- phone call ends, and that's our relationship. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I can relate. A oh, bit okay, to that. There yeah, you so. go. That's a different so, podcast, but uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I understand. Um, one of the things I think is really instructive and cool and, and interesting about you is that you're you're very consciously modeling a new uh, a new idea of what it means to be a leader and a CEO. Throughout the 80s and the 90s, me being you know two decades older than you, um, the people who are influencing what that looked like were much more traditional. Mm-hmm. It was the Gordon Geckos and greed is good and um win at all costs and never show weakness, never show vulnerability. And I think what you're showing up and representing is something entirely different. And despite whatever you know fuel sources you're relying upon, healthy or otherwise, like shame, um you're sharing in real time that journey for the benefit of others. And you're leading with openness and optimism and and a level of vulnerability that a couple decades ago or not too long ago would would have been frowned upon or or looked upon as a weakness in terms of how one would lead teams. Um, And so I think there's something really interesting and instructive about those choices and what it means in terms of how other people show up to lead teams, to be leaders, to be CEOs, to be executives, and just to be more fully actualized human beings. You know,
1: vulnerability was a revelation in my life and it was an experiment that I ran and I say this because, as a man, as a CEO, um, s- sometimes it felt difficult to be vulnerable, right? Especially in my, the early career, because mm-hmm. I still... I'm in the wake of the area that you've described. And even I, growing up, saw CEOs on TV as being these like white men in suits that are like, yeah. I never heard them stop to talk about what they were struggling with on, on TVs and in movies. and And about, I'd say, five years ago, I sat with my team, um, and said, I want to start a podcast and I want to be honest about what's going on in my diary. And in there, it would include everything from masturbation, challenges with my mother, mental health, anxiety, regretting decisions I made that day. And I want to just, I want to put it out there and see what happens. And I say it was an experiment because it's terrifying to do that. That experiment, putting that first episode out there, was the most enlightening thing I've ever experienced I thought vulnerability was a repellent. It turns out it's the world's greatest magnet. It brings everybody to you. If you think about what's in greatest supply in the world, it's the antithesis of vulnerability. It's filtering your life and showing, you know, the best parts of your life and that you're, you're successful and imperfect and all of those things. That's the thing that's in greatest supply. The thing that's fundamentally in the least, de- um, is in highest demand though, is the thing that r- we can relate to in the 99% of our lives which is the struggle, the insecurity, the doubt, the eating the pot noodle on your bed, on your belly button at 1am in the morning, thinking about someone that's broken your heart. That's the thing in greatest demand, but in least supply. And so it turns out, um, also I came to learn a couple of years later that we, we, when someone shares their struggle, it increases oxytocin levels in us and we feel more connected to them. So I tried sharing mine and it was the most profound reaction I'd had from my best friends in my life, only my best friends listened to it because it was episode number one. Mm-hmm. But what they said to me changed my life. So I wanted to continue that, that experiment of vulnerability in more areas of my life, including with my, my partner, with my team members, and with the general public. And it is win-win. It makes me feel amazing because I get things that are trapped inside of me running my unconscious mind like a puppet master in the back room out in the open. And also, other people can more um, relate to it and resonate with it more than anything I could say. If I sat here now and said, "Oh yeah, I've got a Range Rover Sport and a Ferrari, and I've got a million pounds," I mm. no one's gonna get take anything from that or feel connected to that. But the, me talking about my mother and the human sides of the ninety nine percent of my life, great for me, yeah, yeah, great for them. It's interesting that
0: that it began as an experiment, uh, and 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 you were kind of calculating it. In terms of external response, and my mind was going to what was the internal barometer of that because in doing that in in summoning the courage to be vulnerable, especially in a public format um, is is a frightening prospect, yeah uh, but it's also incredibly cathartic and empowering, yeah, and liberating right yeah. because you're carrying around that baggage, and there is generally a, a, you know, a piece of shame attached to these things mm-hmm. because we feel weak or insecure around those vulnerabilities. But in sharing them and exposing them to the light, we realize uh, one, they didn't kill us. Two, people aren't rejecting us as a result of sharing them. And three, uh, by, by putting it out there, it no longer holds power over you in the way that it did when you keep it in the shadows. Exactly that.
1: Simon Sinek's been on my podcast three times and he said the third mm-hmm. episode where he opened up with I'm Feeling Lonely, he told me his entire social... He said, oh, all the other podcasts I've ever done, you know, people might come up to me and say, that was a good episode. That one, he said, was, it changed his life. His whole friendship circle, right onto him. Messages, phone calling him that day, people in the streets and cafes coming up to him, in his words, crying their eyes out. Why? Because Simon went from being this great thinker and you know, great deliverer of ideas to being a human being that we can relate Mm -hmm. to at a deep level. Running the experiment of vulnerability in more areas of your life will be the greatest magnet towards connection um, anyone could ever ever run. Sharing your struggle, honestly, um, it almost bucks the trend because we've been hardwired to believe that people will be drawn to us if we are perfect. If we portray perfection. That's a great lie. It's the opposite completely especially i actually think this has been accelerated by the advent of social media the first chapter in social media which i was a big part of i was running a social media business at that time was all about perfection then there was this sort of counter movement away from perfection and towards authenticity and that's where we live now which is i think mm-hmm. we're in the age of authenticity where authenticity is an unbelievable currency for you it's great for this is the important thing it's great for you as well yeah but there's health. a
0: there's a caveat to that which is what we now see quite a bit of is performative authenticity, yeah, yeah. uh, which is which is you know sort of a, a false, uh, <laughs> which is the counter movement yeah, to authenticity, <laughs> right. which which makes the whole wor- word uh, you know authenticity devoid of meaning. It yeah. becomes a wallpaper word to yeah. coin a phrase from from your book, um, and then it becomes incumbent upon the um, person on the other end of the phone who's scrolling to discern the difference between somebody who's truly being honest and showing up and and expressing from the heart versus the person who's doing it for, you know, the the likes and and yeah. the comments, right?
1: And I think we're good at telling the difference. I give people more credit for that.
0: Yeah, and I think young people are are extremely good at their the bullshit detectors on young people are very finely honed out of survival out of uh, i mean it's a it's a skill that's required as somebody who grows up with technology to understand the difference
1: yeah and as you say, they've, they've spent gen z's have spent 20 you know in many cases they've been t- in the social media era for 20 years now so every day for 9 hours a day according to some of the studies they're looking at people's performances and almost as if they're they're training the the and through mm-hmm. machine learning in their brains, what authentic looks like and what it doesn't look like. And when someone's lying to you and when they're not, when they're being honest and when they're being dishonest, the world's greatest A-B test on a generation of humans and how they behave and what, they're, what, they're, what their intentions are, which maybe we, you know, my dad didn't have growing up, maybe in a day he didn't encounter a thousand people, but the Gen Z's in my office, are scrolling through thousands and thousands of performances a day. So their barometer has been finally tuned. Right. And what is that doing to Jesus, young brains? I don't know,
0: I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't wanna think about that. (laughs) As somebody who's in that ecosystem and in that business. Um,
1: I don't think it's doing a good thing. I don't think it's doing good things for sure. Um, And I was actually, as I was getting my haircut, the barber had brought his two-year-old son. Mm. And to keep the two-year-old son occupied while I'm getting my haircut, he obviously places the phone there. And the phone is hypnotized, this two-year-old. The, the two-year-old is literally, and I said to him, look, he's hypnotized. And because he's just doing the same motion back and forth, looking at the screen. If you take that phone away, this kid starts running around and grabbing stuff and playing with, the minute you put that phone down, frozen, mm. I was thinking there's something in that two-year-old's brain that has is being hijacked. Some kind of dopamine, oh, sure. with, you know? It's the same with, with that generation. And there's a cost, yeah. there's always
0: a cost. So you conduct this experiment in vulnerability in a public sphere by launching the Diary of a CEO podcast. I went back and listened to a variety of your very oh, <laughs> early geez, episodes, Just <laughs> super interesting. Um, oh, obviously the show has evolved quite a bit uh, since those early days, but I really like those monologue episodes I find it very difficult myself to sit in front of a microphone and and just talk. It's much easier for me to you know kind of do this sort of thing, and it's easier for me to hide a little bit right like <laughs> I try to inject just enough of myself, but mm-hmm. it's not about me mm-hmm. um, but when it's just you talking into the microphone sharing uh, from the heart um, that that's a you know that that requires something altogether different um. I'm curious around the evolution of the show. Obviously it's a you know, global yeah. smash success and congratulations. I think you know, it's, it's well-earned and you know that I have huge respect for um, what you do and the way that you do it. Uh, but I'm curious around why you don't do more of those vulnerable check-ins. Of all the requests we get, the most frequent
1: one is people wanting me to do that. Mm. Those first sort of 10, 15 episodes of all the requests I get. I've put my stories multiple times over the last two years. I'm gonna do it again. I'm gonna do like my Steve's diary sharing, maybe seven points from my diary every week, where I'm just being completely honest and open about what I'm thinking, what I've been struggling with. It um, it was it act, The process of it unlocked so many answers in my life, more than anything I've ever done. It's why I felt realized why I couldn't be in a relationship, why I was struggling to be in a relationship from doing that process of mm-hmm. writing my diary, reflect upon it, broadcast it, teach it to the world. Yeah.
0: We broke up again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Oh my
1: gosh. You've really listened. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Honestly, it was it was um two things. The first is time. Mm. It takes much less time for me to interview somebody else. Um
0: that's kind of a bullshit excuse. Though. Honestly,
1: like for me like to interview someone else takes me I'd say say so 2-3 three, three hours preparation time and then the conversation will last three hours. So it's about six hours in total. For me to sit down and and write through my notes and my diary takes, I'd say nine hours solid. And I spe- I heard mm-hmm. Huberman talking about his solo episodes, and he says it takes days, days and days. Oh and yeah, days. yeah, for sure. But that's like, a that's a very and, different thing. Yeah, that that's why I think it is. And then
0: interviewing. See, other I think people, there's something else. I think really? there's a resistance. Really? Because now the podcast is a juggernaut and what you're doing is working so well. So it's very easy to not do the thing that you were doing at the beginning. Do you think I should? Yeah. You think I should? Yeah, not every episode, but once a month maybe. Don't forget what inspired you to do it to begin with.
1: All right, so can I, so just being completely honest, mm-hmm. I just don't know where I'd fit it. My team always want me to do it. My team are like my team actually put a solo episode in yesterday and I deleted it from my calendar because I was that day I was like, I've got too many meetings on and this is my only day where I can sit mm-hmm. down and work. So I deleted it. It's easy to remove
0: those ones. Apply your discipline equation.
1: I don't know where I go I need to say and I think more it, things. It,
0: it fits squarely in the in the value in, in one of your value buckets. Yeah. You're right. You are right. I I Honestly, from the bottom of my heart,
1: I can't add anything to my life right now. I can't add nine hours to my life right now. I, I don't know where I'd add it. Mm-hmm. Getting getting me to write the last... I told you yesterday, I flew back to London and wrote the last law in London. My manager who sat out there, and he'll know because he's, he's smirking and putting a thumb mm-hmm. My manager had to chase me for three months to get me to write that last law. It's about four pages. So to think I'd, sit, I'd be able to sit down maybe once a week and write what... Solo episodes are about seven or eight pages. I don't know how I would do that. My vlog that I've started is mm-hmm. my way of showing you into my world a little bit. Sure,
0: but that's a that's day in the life. Yeah. So, I'm just challenging you Please, I, gently here. The show is called Diary yeah. of a CEO and it has become more and more other people's diary. Yeah. And not your own. Yeah. So, just something to think about. I'm gonna do it. Just put it. On the
1: calendar, I'm a month it. from now, and I'm going to do audio only. Yeah, so that it's yeah, yeah. easier for me to right. read from my notes, and I don't mm-hmm. have to keep doing cuts. And I'm going to run it as Steve's diary once a week or once a fortnight on audio only. There you go.
0: I'm going to hold you to that, please, please. Yeah. The other thing that that uh, I noticed yesterday when when I bumped into you on the street um, that 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 made me think that it made you a little uncomfortable was when we were taught, you were sharing about how you went away to finish the book. yeah. And I was sharing that I do a month sabbatical every year. yeah. And you almost recoiled <laughs> at the idea. Um, so when we talk about discipline and hard work and entrepreneurship and going the extra mile and staying late with your team and, and mm. all the kind of things that you think about when you're trying to achieve a goal, the idea of stopping altogether, mm to me feels like a healthy pursuit of that discipline. Because I think it's easy for you to go, 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 but maybe it might require a little bit of discipline to stop and understand that that's part of the process also.
1: That would be the hardest discipline for me to master. Right,
0: right, right, right. And? It's easy to be disciplined about things other people think are hard, but are second nature to you. Mm-hmm. Real discipline is plying it against the things that you're most resistant to. So if we go back to the
1: equation and look at the the me stopping for a month, not doing any work for a month. Through here's, gonna, that equation. here's all the
0: excuses and all the reasons why it's but impossible. The, the why is just not there for me.
1: So, you know, you talk. we often, you probably talk about it in your show, I talk about a lot of mine that sometimes people need to hit a rock bottom moment or a certain level of mm-hmm. pain before the why increases right. before they break the the cycle that they're in. For me, the why is not strong. So when you say that, my brain goes, yeah, but why? I don't need mm-hmm. to stop. If at some point in my life, whether it's through having kids, or whether there's some kind of personal crisis in my life, um, the why increases, I think I might be disciplined with that. But uh, where I sit today, I go, I'm, I'm a little bit overextended, but there's no part of me that would see taking a month off as Helpful or necessary. So, I, I would. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I. You know that at Christmas time, I take about three weeks and I go to Bali. I've done that Costa Rica and Bali every year for the last three years. There, I, I sit alone and I write. That's what I would do mm-hmm. in my free time. I wouldn't enjoy taking a month off and doing nothing. My stability is chaos. Yeah, my chaos is stability. now.
0: It is. It has always been. (laughs) Now it is. Um, But the discomfort uh, that comes up for you around the idea of doing nothing, I think is worthy of investigation. 100%. Yeah. And maybe you do need to burn out. Maybe. Or something has to happen for you to recognize that. I just think that, Under universal law, you have stress and rest, right? You go to the gym, you stress your body, you rest, you recover, you go to sleep every night. Everything is a cycle, whether it's a micro cycle or a macro cycle. So, I know that you prioritize sleep, you don't set an alarm, you make sure that you get as much sleep as you need so that you can be the high performer that you are, that's in the micro, but in the macro, look at it from a decade perspective or an annual perspective you need to build in those rest intervals just the same.
1: This is why my girlfriend is so, such a great counterbalance in my life mm. because she demands of me my time when we go away. So, she, we went away to Portugal about- How dare she do that? Yeah, I know. i framed that really badly, but, <laughs> but everything in my life is is uh, I, do, I do because I wanna do. And when she's, she says, I wanna go to Portugal for a week and spend some time with my family, I wanna, I wanna go as well. Mm-hmm. It's not, and I say this to her, she knows this about me if she wasn't there, I wouldn't be doing this. Like if she wasn't in my life, default Steve, when she goes away herself for two weeks is intense. Mm-hmm. Really, really intense. And I like it. Yeah, I know. <laughs>
0: this is what I'm saying. It's I, choice, I, yeah, of, of course. course.
1: I, I understand this. But I, but I also reflect and go, it's not, it's not sustainable. And there's this other thing that's about to emerge in my life, which is children at some point mm-hmm. in the next three years, How will I fit children into that equation when they will also demand of me my attention and my time? Something's got to give. And as I always, I found in some of my friends, when they're not changing behaviors and they're not breaking habits, maybe they just need a little bit more pain. And it's a horrible thing to say, but you know that um, certain people just need a little bit more pain before they change course and say enough is enough. Maybe I need a little bit more pain Mm -hmm. in the opposite direction to flip my incentive structure. But I have to also caveat this by saying, I'm happy, whatever that means. As in, I wake up with a deep sense of gratitude for the life that I get to live. And um, I rarely have sad days. I mean, can I think of having a sad day? I've had like really difficult periods, Mm -hmm. but I don't have a lot of sad days. Um, So yeah, that's also why there's not been enough force in the opposite direction getting me to change the way I am.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm glad to hear that you're happy and I think that's genuine, I believe you. Um, but I, I think there's a maybe just beneath the surface, some control issues, some fear around what it would feel like, what it would look like if you had to kind of release the reins a little bit and let some other people in. That's very threatening to your identity and the direction that you're driving your ship right now. I think you're scary. That's scary. Sorry. I, think, you're, I yeah. think you've
1: nailed it. Maybe I'm not so conscious of that fear, but I think there's definitely a fear there because why wouldn't I go in and hang out in um, beautiful places around the world and beaches and just relax and just get on the moped and just drive down, and go to the gym and just chill out and just do something else and not be obsessed. Why wouldn't I do that? Where does this obsession come from? And it is, it's an obsession, my team know. It's a seven-day-a-week shower, walking down the street, everywhere I go, mm-hmm. obsession. Why? I... I would have to relate it to the things I've said in my childhood. And I think what that created in me is also this, this when you believe you're really capable of a lot of things, when you really believe in yourself, you're almost haunted by that potential. And you always feel like there is no end to where you can go. And when you're stood in the face of a huge perception of potential, like you just think that there's, you, there's, there's no finish line here, mm-hmm. um, and I think maybe there's a part of me that thinks myself maybe at a deep level that thinks my self-esteem is related, is correlated to how far down that never-ending
0: track I am. And so. what is the role that your ego is playing in all of that?
1: Because there is a ego? there's a kernel
0: of narcissism at the center of that, thinking that you're the you're the puppeteer in charge of all this latent potential awaiting manifestation. And it's just it's up to you. And you're sheer force of will to make it happen. Um, and there's something beautiful about it too. I don't wanna cast it in in a pejorative way. But what is, what, when you say ego, how do you define
1: that? Because the word is used so broadly. Sure,
0: the idea that that you and you alone mm. uh, are responsible for whether or not these great gifts that you're gonna bestow upon the world are gonna happen or not. Yeah, And as such, going to the gym and chilling out and riding a moped around Bali, is a frivolous pursuit uh, that is reserved for mortals. So,
1: I do believe that, I definitely have a bias, <laughs> bias towards believing. No, I do, yeah. I definitely have a bias towards believing that my outcomes in life are like heavily correlated to what I do. And that can be a gift and a curse. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the exact way you've just described it. And, and
0: what is the relationship between self-esteem or just a, a, you know, a feeling of, of goodwill within yourself and the external results of, of your labor. This is something that I'm, I've had to hazard
1: a guess at, because it's not abundantly clear to me. But when I think about... Um, when I think of, when I piece together certain pieces of the jigsaw I can see, I assume that the missing pieces that I can't see are telling me that there's a correlation between what I achieve and my perception of myself mm-hmm. at a deep level, you know? I can't fully see that picture, but there must be.
0: This is something that I suffer from. Yeah. So I can relate to this self inquiry. Um, but I know that you've shared your kind of ongoing conversation with yourself around this, that perhaps was maybe initially prompted when you sat with Radhna Swami. Oh, yeah. And he said something to you yeah. around the idea of, of you being enough or. Yeah. Um, you are loved for who you are and, and your kind of recoiling response to that. Yeah, so um,
1: that conversation actually came from a lady that came to my office and said to my team mm. many years ago, just imagine you're already enough. Imagine that you have everything you need and you've, you, all these goals that you have in your life, they don't actually matter. You already have everything you need. And I remember thinking, that's a load of nonsense. God, that's gonna mean that what's the point getting out of bed in the morning? What's the point of motivation if, you've, if you're have if you already enough? I remember walking back to my desk, the idea sat in my brain for two years and everything I figured out about the nature of my life proved it to be true. And also when I realized that at 25, when I got that range of a million pound six pack girlfriend and the anticlimactic feeling of you were aiming at the wrong thing and none of these goals ever mattered, made me realize that unless you believe what that woman said to me that day, unless you believe that you are currently already enough, what ends up happening is you fall into the trap of thinking that one Steve Bartlett can be worth more than one Steve Bartlett if I accomplish something. The currency of Steve Bartlett is one Steve Bartlett irrespective of accomplishment is always gonna be worth the same inside here. So if I accept this idea, that I'm already enough and that none of this stuff is going to move me, then I can start aiming at things that I didn't believe would sway my internal worth, which means mm-hmm. aiming at internal ambitions, intrinsic mm-hmm. things, which is why the podcast really took off and why I started it, because it was something I would do regardless of um, regardless of remuneration. Um, so One of the things in my life that I loved, obviously
0: the motivation structures change when it, becomes a bit more widely listened sure, to. Sure, sure. But what you're getting at really is this idea, this distinction between ambition- Fake and ambition insecurity. and real ambition. Yeah, how, how, how you mask insecurity as ambition and it's only in success that you realize the nature of that. Yeah, I thought her words would erode my ambition.
1: In fact, it erodes your fake ambitions. What it illuminates is your real ambitions and, um, and I have kids come up to me after I speak on stage and they'll say, I wanna be a public speaker, like 19-year-old kids. And I go, why do you wanna be a public speaker? And they go, you know, like, I wanna want, want to, speak on stage. What they're actually doing, what they actually want is they want the admiration they just saw you get.
0: Right. It's not that they have an idea they feel compelled to no, share. No, no, it's about no. you, it's about standing on a stage yeah. and having people look at them and, and clap. Which they didn't get at seven mm-hmm. years old. So that's a
1: fake ambition. They don't actually wanna be a public speaker. Um, and in that instance, we've com- confused as aspiration with admiration. Um, We have admiration for what we just saw in that person. So we think it's an aspiration of our own, but they're two very different things. And so, yeah, that changed my life. But the, I can't even pronounce his name. Radhanath Swami. What he said to me was in New York, Jay Shetty took me to his conference when I was 20 something, early twenties. And I was contending with this internal issue where I knew I was really capable of doing things. I knew I was capable of having an idea and making it happen. So I, when, he, when I got to ask him a question, I said, am I wrong for spending my life, building businesses and enriching myself versus oh, going to right. Africa yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and saving just one life mm-hmm. in the village in Africa where I was born. And he said, you can't pour out for others that which you don't have yourself, which, um, which was really eye-opening for me. And so I spent the next 10 years kind of focusing a lot on building up my skill set so that now hopefully
0: I have more that I can pour out for other people. Because we all Mm. contend with that feeling, don't we? Yeah, yeah. in AA, they say something similar, which is you you cannot transmit something you haven't got. Yes. Which speaks to the authenticity, fake authenticity thing, right? If you're holding yourself out um, in a certain way in the world and doing it in service of others, if that's not real, Mm -hmm. it's not gonna connect or resonate. Amen, yeah. Versus earned experience over time, right? Amen. But when you talk about these these ideas um, that are a little bit more ephemeral, ethereal, um, it reminds me of of a conversation I had recently with Arthur Brooks, uh, social scientist, professor at Harvard Business School and Harvard Kennedy School. Um, he's written a couple books. He has a new book coming out that he co-wrote with Oprah, and he's sort of an expert on happiness. He writes for the Atlantic Magazine, and he's distilled the pursuit of happiness down to these four pillars, which are um, family, friendship, work, preferably work that is in service of others or about something larger than yourself. Mm. And the final one being faith. Now he's a hardcore Catholic, Uh. uh, but he feels very strongly, and the, the social science supports this idea that if you want true happiness and happiness not being a state, but rather the result of how you invest your attention, time, and energy, that something transcendent has to be an aspect of that pursuit, something that is about more than yourself, something that is about through your work serving others, of course, and yet um, a little more ethereal than that. And I think this is where the rubber just might hit the road with you, Stephen, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> As you tense up.
1: Yeah, I was trying to find, find that in my own life. The, the closest thing I can get to that is just the um, conversations you have with people about how um, what you do has helped them in some way. That feels like an almost spiritual um, it's the fourth part of the ikigai yeah, where at, your work as serving Right, others. and I
0: think that's why of all the successes that you've had and all the things that you've done, why the podcast I think is probably the most meaningful. 100%. For you. Yeah.
1: You know the ikigai thing? The, the, sure. The, that fourth piece of doing something that helps the world or other people. It's the only thing I've ever done in my life where I've managed to find that fourth piece, done things that I'm good at that you know will make you money. Um, but But finding that fourth piece of like, This is why it's the of all the things Mm -hmm. I do in my life, it's the most enjoyable and also like, hate to say it, but it's the least
0: profitable financially, but it's the thing I give most of my time to. Mm -hmm. When you find that pursuit that is also an offering, but is a passion, like it's something you love, you would do ordinarily without compensation um, because it, it, it brings so much meaning into your own life. And then in turn, to have that be of tremendous value to other people is the greatest gift. And it's why I will always do this. Like, I just love it. I would do it, I would do it for free. I did do it for free for many years. I'm very grateful that um, it supports my family now, but I understand that um, impulse. And I'm, that's why I'm not surprised, despite all of the companies and all the other things that you do, that that this is the thing that means the most to you. Um, but I still think that that falls under what Arthur Brooks would call the work bucket
1: mm-hmm.
0: and not the the faith or transcendent
1: I grew up believing in a God. Mm -hmm. I grew up believing in a higher power. And for whatever reason at 18 years old, I was the last one to renounce my faith in my family and of my siblings. For whatever reason, I discovered the work of Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Mm -hmm. um, Hitchens. And I started to question as I do with a lot of things. I started to, I had these new ideas in my head. So I spent two years as this absolutely obsessed atheist, agnostic, reading every book, watching every documentary in all of my free time. And from there, my faith my faith fell away, but um, I find faith in and awe and beauty in the stars and the universe and all of, I spent so long reading and studying about the universe and watching the cosmos documentaries. And that has become my new awe, which is this incredible, um, the awe of the world we live in. And it almost came to a point in my life where I didn't feel like I needed to believe in a god or a deity or anything like that, because I can believe in... There's so much awe that r- my brain can't understand. When I think about a whale, I was talking to my girlfriend about it last night as we were falling asleep. These things are just awe-inspiring enough for me to... you know. And there's so many unanswered questions, so I have to live in, would you call it faith? Or would you, would you call it just uh, uncertainty around the nature of mm-hmm. why I'm here and what I'm doing and what the real game is of life?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think uncertainty and and being able to inhabit um, a place of awe and wonder, I yeah. think is a gateway drug towards something greater. But I think in that process, a big piece of it is developing a capacity for humility mm-hmm. that can act as a counterweight against the wiles of the ego mm-hmm. that are luring you in 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 directions quite attractive, but ultimately not in your long term best interest. The the recurring trend I've noticed in the guests that
1: I've had on that I've been through AA, so recently Russell Brand, Rain Wilson, mm-hmm. both friends, both friends, yeah. both written books about spirituality, yeah. both told me, both said what you've just said to me about the faith being such an instrumental part of their lives to the point that I think Russell alluded to the fact that without faith, he is he would not be able to be stable in his day to day. I think he said something to me like, I spend the first two hours of the day reconnecting to my faith just so I can be normal. And I noticed that my guests who have been through AA are the ones that really um, have spoken to me so passionately about the importance of faith. Is, am I like seeing something here? Is there a correlation with that?
0: Well, AA is a spiritual program. Right, okay. So it is one of the, one of the principles and one of the steps is, is developing uh, uh, an understanding uh, and appreciation of a God of your own understanding, a higher power. Uh, and, and the steps are really rooted in ancient spiritual traditions um, that are tried and true. Around doing a personal inventory and making amends, you know from almost a karmic perspective, uh, meditation is one of the steps, being of service, giving back humility, all of these things infuse uh, that twelve step program. but fundamentally, it is about surrendering your life and your will and your power over to something greater than yourself and what is that and that for you? idea of surrender, I think is very counterintuitive. And, and particularly with people who are um, of the kind of alpha personality types, because it provokes a sense of, of giving up in them, which I have only learned over the years is an illusion. The idea being that when you're in your own self-will and you're running your life according to those parameters where it's all about you and what you want and what you need, and it's up to you to get it, um, that that can be an effective fuel source that can even reap positive rewards in your life, but but it will ultimately plateau and hold you back from your greatest capacity, which is what happens when you allow yourself to recede a little bit more into the background, relinquish those reins and understand that there are forces greater than yourself at work and at play that when you can be in that space will help guide you in the direction you're meant to go. And I think the entry point for you is making the connection between that and this very strong sense of self and intuition that you have that has always been your guiding force in your life. What is that?
1: force or faith for you?
0: It's undefined. You know, okay. It doesn't fall into any specific tradition other than kind of a broad knowing that there, are, that there are forces at play that are beyond our capacity to intellectually understand. And it's my job to not be in, engaged in trying to understand it with my mind and instead to let go of that and just engage with the heart, which means, paying attention to that inner voice. What is it telling me? Why do I have this? Where does that come from? And really respecting that, which I think you already do. Okay, but but you don't have to do a practice, like a daily
1: practice to connect with that.
0: Well, that's of your own design, but I think a practice around stillness and quietude so that you can hear what's being said inside of you, I think is important. And again, I think this is something that you're already doing. But I think that's why meditation and mindfulness um, practices can be so powerful because they connect you with that heart voice. That's so easy to cloud in the gestalt of our busy, stressful lives. You're completely right because the person- and I know your girlfriend, what's your girlfriend's name again? Melanie. Melanie, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure she would- She's probably banging this drum in your ear all day long. You would no, no. she's living it. Yeah,
1: but she's, she, I mean, she wakes up and
0: meditates for an hour every single morning, and But she's at... liberated from the need for you to see it the way that she does. Yeah, and yeah, vice versa. Which is, which is evidence of an advanced consciousness.
1: So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's, it goes both ways as well. Like we, It's really interesting to have a girlfriend who's so deeply spiritual. That's her career, that's her life. She does retreats, Breathwork Studio where we met mm-hmm. yesterday. But the reason why we work is because we have our lives and we're secure in it and we're not trying to convert the other individual to our way of thinking. We're looking over and stealing things from each other's lives. Mm-hmm. We said this in the car two days ago. She was like, I love... I used to think I wanted to be with someone who was also really, really spiritual, but I've got that box ticked. So being with you allows me to learn something and vice versa, in terms of I've learned so much from her, from just observing her. Right. Um, it's really interesting though, because when I do go to Bali at the end of the year, the conversation in my head and who I am is much closer to who, who I want to be. And it's because of the stillness. It's because I've, I've had space away from
0: the the machine. So can you bring some piece of that into your daily life and a routine? I have sat with so many amazing
1: people, super successful people that I love and admire so much who tell me about the importance of meditation. And I have still not made it a habit Mm -hmm. in my life, a discipline in my life. And again, it's because there's something in my brain, and this is me just being completely honest. I mm-hmm. completely believe in meditation and stillness, and taking thirty minutes a day, even you know twenty minutes a day. I completely believe in how much that would impact my life.
0: Do you though? But I because don't you are so good things. at taking those things you know will benefit you, and and incorporating them into your life. Yeah, the resistance there I think is interesting because I think on some level you do believe, but there's also a big part of you that doesn't. The the part of the discipline equation, now that I think about that, it's missing,
1: is prioritization comes into play because your time is a zero-sum game. Yeah. So it depends if I believe in deep within me, if I believe something else is gonna reap a greater return on investment. So you can believe these things. I can I believe meditation is important just because I've heard it so much. I've experienced it in my own life a little bit. But I think somewhere in me, I believe all these other things are more important. I believe getting up at nine a.m. and having that call with the fund manager who's going to invest in our fund was more important than pausing for thirty minutes. And until the prioritization um, changes, it won't happen. Is that is that accurate? Does that make sense? Like, am I am I yeah. or am I bsing myself? Uh, I don't know. Only you know. Yeah, because there's some things I believe and I want to do, but they're not winning out
0: over the other things. Sure, I think part of it is is this idea that you know our morning routines are now extended you know hours and hours and hours like what are you going to actually do to begin your day are you going to get up you're not going to set the alarm so you're going to wake up later so you get your rest and then you're going to do your meditation and then you're going to do your cold plunge and your sauna and your workout and your your morning pages and your journaling it's one Jesus. o'clock in the afternoon. yeah, yeah. So I understand that. There's something very human about that, but I think it's curious. I mean, you recently had Sam Harris on the podcast. Yeah. You've had Russell. You've had all these people. They're they're you know, I mean, Sam, atheist, right? So he's yeah. non-threatening to you from that kind of uh, organized religion perspective or or spirituality perspective, and yet I think he would aggressively uh, advise you that that 30 minute meditation is far more important than these other things that your brain is telling you um, should come first. I
1: look at it through the context of that discipline equation and I say, okay, friction's probably quite high because it's difficult for me to sit down and do nothing. That's quite a difficult psychological challenge for me. The enjoyment of it is probably not high enough and the why is probably not clear enough. So if something happens in my life, if I have some kind of experience, maybe I go on a retreat and someone sits with me for seven days and they really show me, mm-hmm. I, need to be, I need to feel it and see it for myself, how transformative this is. And if they, they, they find some way to make it more enjoyable for me and reduce the friction, it will stick. Sleep is a really interesting example of this, how it stuck in my life. Last night, before I went to bed, I kissed my girlfriend on the lips, went, nah. I said, last night, babe, my sleep efficiency was really, really low. So I'm going to sleep in the spare room tonight, which is my room. And I slept in the, the room. I wake up first thing in the morning, look at my whoop, check exactly how much sleep I've had. Because I ran the experiment of not sleeping and sleeping and saw the variance using data to understand the correlation in my mood performance and how I feel is so great when, I'm, when I haven't had restorative sleep it's stuck. Mm-hmm. And now it's like a non-negotiable in my life. And meditation will have to do the same thing. It will have to impress upon me so greatly the advantages of it that that why part will become discipline. It's, it's not there yet with
0: me. And does that have to be experiential? I think so. Or could you take the advice of, of people who are practitioners of this, who could tell you, trusted people, yeah. people like, Sam Harris, Tim Ferriss, people like that—that that, you know—you probably on some level, uh, you know, uh, appreciate their wisdom and, and believe that they're credible in what they're telling you. So they—they've all told me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> see, this is but the thing—it goes yeah. to beliefs, right? And yeah, this yeah. Is what yeah. I talk about with beliefs. I talk but you're, about it. You're,
0: it's interesting too. You're like, I could see the gears in your brain working. You're, you have this mental model, and you're trying to solve it intellectually.
1: I I believe that our beliefs are most significantly influenced by our first party experiences. And that's why I talk about running these experiments and building self-belief. If you try and have a conversation with a flat earther, you can tell them all that, mm-hmm. you can show them pictures. You have a whole
0: thing in the book about this. Yeah.
1: yeah, the only way you would ever convert a flat earther is taking them up there. That's the only way, taking up there and looking at, looking at the planet, that's the only way. I, I, there probably would be another reason
0: they would come up with.
1: Oh, yeah, when they got up there, they would say, oh, this is an illusion, this mirror. But that's the closest you could do. And it's the same with climate change. Until people see the river in their own own village overflowing every single week, they're not gonna see a gradual change Mm -hmm. happening in the atmosphere. They won't believe it. So the same, I think, applies for all of us when we're trying to change our beliefs. You have to go and get first party evidence that you subjectively accept as true. And I can expose you to first party evidence, but you might not subjectively accept it's true. So you have to then accept that it's true. Breathwork was a good example for me. My girlfriend did took me to a breathwork class. Breathwork, what breathing? Mm. And I had a really transformative experience where I'm crying after. I believe in breathwork now.
0: Holotropic breathing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, That kind of like psychedelic, Yeah. yeah. It's incredibly powerful.
0: You can get a group of people to open up and weep and share experiences almost instantaneously, people that don't even know each other. So my wife takes, groups of people through this exercise on our retreats and it bonds the group and it's amazing what people share in the aftermath of these experiences. It's like a psychedelic experience without taking psychedelics. Do you think we've all got a different sort of
1: barometer of skepticism and a requirement for logic and proof and evidence and science when we approach our lives? Because you was talking about the cogs going on in my brain. I'm definitely someone that needs to see it. (laughs) Sure. <laughs> and understand mm. the science for me to accept it.
0: Yeah. Get over yourself. Is that is that really what yeah, it is? I think, I think on some level, I understand it because yeah. I'm the same way. And my relationship feels uh, to my wife feels similar to your relationship with your girlfriend, even though I haven't met her, just based on what you've shared with me. Um, and I think I am best guided when I'm able to kind of step out the, step outside of the confines, understand that that our brains are attempting to identify patterns that help us make sense of the world. And we do that so that we feel safe. This understanding of who we are, this crafted identity that I know I'm very invested in um, based upon these mental models that I have about how the world works, about who I am and how I fit into it. And I think some of my greatest growth has been when I can disabuse myself of those parameters or understand their limitations and just allow myself to step outside of it and entertain something different. And I think what's interesting about this, given your resistance, but also your curiosity, is this disposition that you have around questioning the question. Like this is almost a gift of yours to always try to step outside whatever paradigm you're in so that you can have a broader view of what is happening and and identify a different or new way. So maybe for you questioning the question should be applied to your own pattern making capacity in your intellectual mind. Part of me, the way I
1: like rationalize it to myself, and this might not be true, is if I accept things that I can't understand, or see the data on, or experience, then I'm susceptible to accepting anything. Mm-hmm. And that's not a, that doesn't feel like a productive framework for decision-making as I proceed in my life. And I have to be honest, this might have been influenced by my early context, because you've got a mother who will believe everything. And then seeing that fail her mm. everything, things with no evidence. You know, I would wake up and she would have my 3am th- in the morning. She's got my maths books from school and she's going through them to find numbers. She's got a ball spinning here and she's finding numbers in the in the maths book, putting her hand- finger on them. And if they come out of this ball that she's spinning, she'll play them in the lottery. Mm. Just, just right, right. I would right. wake up and she had an that egg makes on my sense. head. Yeah, I understand. She put an egg on my head when I woke up in the morning and be doing smoke in my room. So I saw this like superstitious, you know, and we all, all four of us are the most pragmatic, I mean, mathematicians, Mm -hmm. pragmatic, we required data to believe things Mm -hmm. and we rejected that.
0: Right, as a reaction. I think so, yeah. It was
1: just so strange to Mm -hmm. us. So we've all grown up to be very logical and evidence-based, every single one of us. And uh, I've applied that to my life clearly where I'm
0: super skeptical about things. And yet you found your way to Melanie. Yeah, who sees the world very differently and navigates it differently than you. And there's something about that, that, that clearly is intriguing and interesting and compelling. Every girlfriend is like that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Every girlfriend right. I've had is like that. Right, right. The one before so what is like, that? I think it's, I mean, maybe there's some like Freudian mother Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I think outside Uh of that, I am also a really, really curious person. You've
0: outsourced your awe and wonder to your partner. 100%, that's why I said. Which makes you feel safe while also appreciating it as long as it is at arm's length. Yeah, and as long as it's not trying to convert me. It's not threatening your your mental model. I love it, I would not be with, I said to Mm -hmm. her
1: last two days ago when we were in the car talking about this, notice how I've never dated anyone like myself. I said, that would be a nightmare. Mm -hmm. I love being able to look into your world and your window and and see how you're you're doing the investigations for me. You're rummaging around and then you're telling me about it, but you're not trying to convert me, you're sharing. And from that, I've taken things. I've become a way better person because of that. in that non-threatening way, like she's not threatening to me. She's not Mm -hmm. trying to convert me to anything. So it's been a wonderful balance in my life having her, um, both for work-life balance or whatever they call it, but also for like spiritual balance and, She'll notice in me, she's noticed a huge change in me since she met me. It's just slower. Mm -hmm. My girlfriend, and I say this with all respect, she defaults to accepting new ideas and beliefs about the world. Mm -hmm. I default to interrogation and pessimism. And one or two of them get in, but they get in slowly and after meeting certain criteria. They
0: they have to be, they're they're sort of stress tested before you let them in. 100%, like breath work. I don't know what the science says about it, but you've had an experience with it. Doesn't matter the science to me.
1: I mean, the guy explained it to me, and that's probably why he was the right person to do it with me. He explained the physiological processes in my body with fight or flight, and how how we we live in a state of shallow breathing, and how the oxygen in the brain. And then we did the session. I so you have explanation, you have experience, acceptance. Yeah, for me. Yeah. You can't just give me yeah, yeah, explanation.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you have an interesting relationship with risk. Uh, for you, the risk would be to live an ordinary life, um, to extend yourself and and you know kind of pursue these startups, doesn't feel like a risk to you in the way that it would maybe for somebody who's wired a little bit differently. So I'm curious around what you feel to be risky or what is it that that is luring you in a certain direction but frightens you and feels like a risk even though, you know, perhaps it's something you should explore?
1: Um, the thing that frightens
0: me, I think if I'm being honest,
1: is as the platform that I have, like with the diary of a CEO has gotten bigger, with that comes just more feedback to deal with. Mm-hmm. It goes, kind of goes back to what I was saying about rejection and that kid in the playground in, in school. Your your success, which you you drive towards because you want validation, you want clapping, right, also comes with booing. And I think that is the thing that frightens me. Like, I I know that in order to have a happy life going forward, what I need is a small context of people that I love that are around me and to be doing things for intrinsic reasons. But as that expands, the temptation to tune into external voices or to do things that aren't intrinsic increases. And that is the risk that I face in my life. Being swayed away from myself and into um, caring about the noise that I've clearly been intentional in trying to create. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That's the thing that terrifies me. Yeah. And how that might hurt my life. Like, I, I, One of the things I'm scared of is like people knowing who my girlfriend is and how that might ruin this special part of my life Mm -hmm. that is keeping, is really pure and wonderful and small and feels like a, you know, I'm scared of that, you know, Rogan's managed that really, really well because people don't really, keeps that out of it.
0: Yeah, he seems very conscious around um, what he's willing to share about his personal life. Um, But I think that's the trade-off, right? You're in the public sphere and it comes with the good and it comes with the bad, Um, but can you, rest your head every night knowing that you put out content that is attempting to raise the vibration of consciousness. Like you, you, you truly are approaching this from a place of curiosity and, and genuine interest to learn and to share um, good ideas with people. And maybe not every episode is gonna connect with everybody in the mm-hmm. way that you um, would like, but I think intention matters. And I think it's very clear Uh, the intention that you're bringing to what it is that you're doing. And I guess what I would say is with that, irrespective of what the cackling and the caucus is around whatever episode or whatever's happening that's outside of your control, can you not just sleep easy knowing that you did your best to do good in the world? Yeah, 95% of times. Mm -hmm. So then what, what trips you up? That, you know, it would be...
1: This is why I try not to expose myself too broadly. It would be some kind of external... I'm new to being in the public eye. So I haven't put the systems in place everywhere yet to dealing with that. I've, over the last six, 12 months, made a lot of progress, but I went from being someone that people really didn't know at all, to being on the the number one business show in the UK called Dragon's Den, which Mm -hmm. is like Shark Tank in America. Um, being a dragon on there and the podcast in correlation to that surging in the country to being the most downloaded in our in our country, and that suddenly thrust me to the front, and I didn't have systems in place to deal with that, which meant that like walking down the street in Shoreditch, there's a reporter following in, in the car, taking photos of me and my girlfriend walking down the street, then publishing those and saying things that aren't true mm. about we were walking to the gym. We were on our way back from the gym. The pictures in the newspapers say like- Having a, a row. Yeah, like yeah. a heartbreak. He's like, <laughs> got him back with his girlfriend after she, she dumped mm. him for work, overworking. Now, when you receive that, the brain is not, doesn't know how to process that yeah. if, just, if, and, if you try and process that without conscious and, consciousness and intentionality. So how do I handle those, those, that information and feedback in a way that will allow me to remain focused on what matters in my life? That's what I've been working on for the last two years. And I think I've made a lot of good progress, if I'm honest, to put those systems in place. But as you propel further into the public eye, because your show's growing hugely, my show grows, what what comes next? You know, I look at other people who are further down the line. I look at some of the stuff that like a Rogan has been through mm-hmm.
0: and I go, man, that is- I don't is wish t- that on anyone. I don't wish that on anybody. Yeah. And, I, and I wouldn't like to endure what, you know, like a version of what you just shared. I feel like right now, I'm in this sort of perfect place where, Occasionally people say hi to me, but it's always nice and it isn't invasive into my life. And and I'm very cautious about it morphing into anything more unmanageable than that. The
1: only reason it did for me was because I went onto a show, which is like an institution in our country. Yeah. Like, so if you go on, if I think if I was doing my podcast, it wouldn't be the case. If it's the minute that I went into that world. The traditional media world, yeah that's when it all changed mm-hmm. for me before then i didn't have this i didn't have this issue no one cared about me no one mm-hmm. wanted to write anything about me or talk about me um and i almost you know suggesting rogan is obviously so big that he is it's he's in every world it's a different thing it's a yeah. whole different thing yeah yeah so and he's also a ufc and you know everything he's right. done on tv so
0: so you have this new book um yeah. the diary of a ceo which i really enjoyed oh, i was sharing you. with you um yesterday on the street about it on the one hand it's really chock full of all kinds of timeless wisdom. It's definitely written with an eye towards it being timeless. It doesn't matter that it's 2023 or what year it is, um, but also in a way that's quite breezy and easy to digest and read uh, with recaps. And it's sort of written with an eye towards grabbing attention, holding attention and and keeping it as lean as possible. Like there's no extra words here. (laughs) You say exactly, what you need to say in order to drive your point home and to support it with studies or examples of people that you've had on the podcast. Um, and I think you did a really wonderful job and it's gonna impact a lot of people, but I'm curious around why you decided to write a book. We were talking yesterday and I was saying, yeah, you can spend two years writing a book. Mm. Uh, it will make less money than doing a podcast. It will reach less people like the, in your mental model of running the equation of you know value and, um, investment of time, resources, etc. Uh, how do you come out squaring that equation on the side of, of you know investing the time and energy required to put something out that's good? There's so much
1: to be gained in the unobvious decision. Throughout this conversation, we've talked about how, when sort of inauthenticity was high, there was this counter movement towards authenticity, and now there's like another counter movement mm-hmm. which is like fake authenticity. When digital music came along, you know vinyls surged again. Now that we've become more glued to screens and phones, IRL community things are surging. You even see bowling alleys being, making a comeback and miniature golf and all these things. And I believe the same about... Pickleball. Yeah, all of these things Mm -hmm. that are coming back. And it's, I, I, I love it so much because I bet on humans' innate desire for connection and being together in a world where everyone's optimising in the other direction. It will always be there, so there's a big opportunity there to bring people together. Last night, we actually did a dinner party for Dire listeners, third one we've done. There's nothing more magical that we've ever done as a team. There's nothing where people won't leave the room. 20 total strangers from our community that stand up, they all have question cards in front of them from the podcast. They reveal something deeply intimate about them, vulnerable about them. Those 20 people become best friends that night. They, they're literally best friends. They make WhatsApp groups together and then they're friends for like, since the last one we've mm. done, they've been meeting up rec- in, recurringly. There's something so beautiful about the unobvious polar opposite um, path. There's, there's wonder there. And that's kind of how I see a book. I spend all my time making content Instagram quotes and podcasts and the wonder I found in something both physical um that has such depth that takes so long to write is hard to articulate but it's it was it's the most enjoyable thing to me when a couple hundred thousand people whoever or however many that buy that book read that focus on it and then have a conversation with me about it. It's way more impactful than the Facebook video I did. that did thirty million views. That was just a quick, cheap, viral video, mm-hmm. three minutes long. Um, that did a big number, but in terms of meaning, didn't mean anything to anyone. Books are depth. They're meaning and they're um, they're considered. There's no comment section. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so special. Yeah,
0: yeah it's indelible um, and and lasting in in a. In a, in a culture that's increasingly um, recycled, uh, yeah. there, is a, there, is a, there is still a sense of permanence around writing books. Exactly, and it makes no sense to, it makes no sense
1: if you, if you score it based on the traditional scoring system, like you did, like money, time it takes, reach, but it makes all the sense when you score it based on fulfillment for me to write it, fulfillment for the people that take the time to complete the book, um, and as you say enduring because social media and all these other mediums are fairly ephemeral this is the antithesis of that mm-hmm. there's usually value in the antithesis that's what i've come to learn yeah. in my life
0: so if somebody's listening or watching this and they're thinking i'm not a business person mm. i have no desire to be a ceo i don't even know any ceos except maybe my boss like why should i read this book and you know i have a lot of reasons that i could speak to about that but um, i want to hear from you like The average person picking this up, Mm.
1: diary of a CEO. I'm not a business person. I'm not any of those things. I consider myself to be a guy who's trying to live the best life I can and who has conducted experiments over the last 15 years to understanding exactly what you described, um, to understanding which laws and principles will get me closer to living the life I want to live. And I think that's what this book is largely. It's these 33 Mm. principles that have been hard fought through experimentation in my life, relating to yourself, towards being happy, towards having good relationships, towards knowing how to communicate with another human being, towards how to tell stories, to understanding the psychological biases that are at force in all of our lives, making us choose Apple over Samsung or Uber over Lyft or whatever it is. Understanding why humans do what they do, including yourself, is really the nature of this book. And it allows you to understand your team members, yourself,
0: your customers, and all of those things, so. Yeah, it's, it's a social psychology book, really, more than yeah. anything. And the first third of it is really about the self, Yeah, with this idea that you can't be a leader or run an organization if you're not first tending to your vessel and you discuss all the various ways in which um, you've done that or things you've learned as a result of, of hosting the podcast about that. But that's the fundamental pillar upon which everything else rests. Can I ask you a question? Because mm. you're a
1: very smart person and I know you actually read the book. So what law was stood out to you? Mm. I've never had any feedback on the book ever before because you're one of the first to read it.
0: Well, I think that, that uh, I mean, certainly there's plenty in there that I already knew, or I, maybe I didn't have words for, but I already kind of understood uh, the idea that, uh, you know, knowledge is the best uh, investment of your energy and that mm-hmm. everything is built upon from there, skill, relationships, network, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love that idea the one percent kind of David Braille's uh, mm-hmm. Ford rule who's the British cycling team sky guy um, I love that the idea of of success being measured in progress rather than results like being yeah. in this persistent state of moving in a certain direction is actually more meaningful than achieving goals or or um, you know hitting benchmarks it's that sense of, we're going somewhere, and we're doing it together. Mm. I found to be um, really interesting and, and powerful. And then all the sort of marketing stuff that I don't know about, like <laughs> why the Apple Store is the way it is and and why that works. Creating this, um, you know, first allowing you to touch the products and, yeah. and having a sense of ownership over them, and the kind of luxury scarcity notion of space to product yeah. ratio that exists there, and. The examples that you gave um, around creating friction between mm-hmm. the customer and the product, I thought was something I hadn't heard of with the cake mix and yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it wasn't working when it was so easy until they realized that and said, okay, now you have to add an egg and suddenly <laughs> yeah. sales were more like, all these weird kind of counterintuitive marketing things that then you go on to describe how you apply them in your podcast was personally relevant to me. Because I was like, wait, he does what? Like, you know, I'm reading this book. I I joked with you yesterday, I'm gonna make everyone on my team read this. I'm like, all these like, like this is some fucking crazy Machiavellian shit that he's doing <laughs> in this podcast that's making it grow. And like, we're looking at YouTube trying to figure out like, what are we missing here? Or why, I don't, I'll put out amazing content and sometimes it's flat on YouTube and I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and I see you with this hockey stick growth right now. And then I read the book and I realize like, oh, the level of intentionality, the attention to detail, all these things that I really appreciate that aren't, you know, like great mysteries. It's like, you really care about what you do, you've hired really good skilled people, um, you stay up late with them and you pay attention to the small details, the things that um, other people don't care about that become the differentiator. And yeah. that's something that, that I believe in and I thought that I was doing until I read the book and realized like, oh, this guy's at a whole fucking other level. Like the story that you tell about when the guests come in to the studio, you do enough research to play the music, music that they like, like yeah. their favorite music and not one guest has ever mentioned it, no. but the idea that you think that that's important as a detail, and then I was trying to remember what music you were playing when I came <laughs> in, I can't, I can't remember, <laughs> I don't know. I was like, what? You know, anyway, um, I thought all of that was super fascinating because I really um, am proud of the fact that I think that we're executing at a very high level on our podcast and then to realize like, oh, there's so much more Growth. There are so many other things that I wasn't even thinking about. Um, And credit to you know the success that you're that you're having with the show right now. But I don't think I think those details are all super important. But I think they speak to a broader commitment and intentionality that you're bringing to the conversations. And I think that's the real mover in why your show is doing so well and connecting with so many people. Because none of those details matter unless the conversation itself is special. The conversation itself is the part that I feel
1: like I haven't um, ran any experiments on. that Because it's just led by curiosity. So, when you walk in the door, there's no data that's going to tell me what to speak to you about. It's what I'm interested in, about in this individual. Outside of that, the process undergoes a lot of experimentation and 1% searching. But the conversation is like, like I said with Simon Sinek, where he comes and sits down and says, I'm lonely. I'm going to ask I'm going to ask him the questions I care about. I've actually right. never written a question down. I have bullet points of dates and stuff, but I've never mm-hmm.
0: in my my own uh... sure You want to see my outline? This is like I do the same thing. Oh, not, they're not questions. They're yeah. just they're ideas, right? But yeah. I think this this is interesting because this goes to what we were talking about earlier, the the head and the heart. The head wants to say, here is the architecture for a perfect conversation. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm gonna start with the Mr. Beast five second. How do I grab them? Well, I'll go on YouTube. I'll look at all the videos this person has done. And when I see those peaks, I know Mm. that's what people are most interested in. So I'm gonna come out of the gate and ask that question first. That's all good. I'm not saying that doesn't work, but truthfully, the art of the conversation is a heart-centered thing, right? Are you present? Are you listening? Are you sticking to an outline or are you actually paying attention to what the person is saying so that you can have an organic, authentic exchange of ideas and emotions because that's what moves the needle with people. And I always say, when people ask me, how do you approach podcast conversations? You do a lot of prep, but then you have to, like an actor, you have to put it away (laughs) and you have to be willing to go wherever it wants to lead you. And my goal as a host is to emotionally connect with the guest. If I can do that, then I can trust and have faith that the conversation will go in the direction that it's meant to go. But when I allow my head to be in the driver's seat, it it ends up being flat. So for me, it's all about the emotional connection. And I always prided myself on the guy who could make the guest cry or evoke, you know, something true and special emotionally in the person that I'm talking to. And I see you as somebody who really understands that as well, and that being at the heart of what you're trying to do. And that's something that you're not gonna solve with a spreadsheet or a model.
1: So interesting, because people say, we, we've had a lot of um, emotion on our show. And in hindsight, when you're interviewed, people are trying to ask you how that happens. And so you're trying to figure it out yourself. So you're trying to apply your head and go, well, maybe it's because we do this and this and this and this and this, but it's a hindsight thing. At the end of the day, it's because I genuinely cared about trying to find something out about them and really understand that thing. And also listening has actually been the most Mm -hmm. underrated thing about our show is like, people will go where they wanna go. And the longer you let them go there, the higher probability that they're gonna go to a level they've never been before.
0: You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but you have to create an environment that's permissive for that experience. And the way that you do that is to, yes, listen, but also lead with vulnerability yourself. You can't expect the guest to open up if they don't have the sense that you're willing to meet them there.
1: So true, so true.
0: And people will say, oh, Steven, he's the guy, he's the guy who, he wants to know about the trauma. Like what's the trauma that made you the special person that you are? Yeah. And that's really, the. I think that's the, the sort of Skeleton key that unlocks your approach to your guests. I think it's important
1: to say that that's because I genuinely want to know. Right. I, I had a tour guide. and it's real. Yeah, I had a tour guide for seven days in Peru. First six days, he's talking to me about buildings, so I'm not even honestly. I'll be honest, I'm not paying attention to him. My girlfriend's talking to him for those first six days. On the seventh day, he starts talking about the variance in happiness and mood and trauma that he's seen from all of these guests that he's taken on the tours, mm-hmm. from China to Poland, to. and I am glued, I'm transfixed on him. And he says to me at that dinner on the seventh day when we're parting ways, he goes, you didn't care for the first six days about these buildings. You didn't care about where, how old this building was. The minute I started talking about people and why they are the way they are, you were like, I was interviewing him. Mm-hmm. What about these people? What about these people? Are they more grateful? Are they happier? And that was just another instance for me. Also, I have to think about my childhood. I couldn't date people because my first questions were always too deep. So, it was a nice filter for me to see if they were my type of person because I might ask them straight away a really deep question about themselves. And a lot of people don't like that. Mm. My podcast is a reflection of what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. I want to know why people are the way they are. I'd love to interview serial killers and just to understand you know, what's making them tick under there, so.
0: Who is it that you really wanna get on right now? Do
1: you know, one of the people I wanna get on is Elon, because I used to have him on my wall, you know, as like an elite entrepreneur that solved huge problems and is unlabeled. I love people that are unlabeled. Like when you said earlier that I'm a CEO or an entrepreneur, I like see myself as this as a person mm-hmm. with a multitude of interests. He's achieved so much across such a broad range of things. His life is clearly overextended in any, re- in any measure. I want to know if he's really happy. And also, in the last year, there's been a bit of a change in Elon with this whole Twitter thing, yeah. the way he's speaking online. And I want to get to the, the heart of why that is, why he's changed. He's become a little bit ugly in his tone sometimes, um, in my opinion. And I want to know if he cares about happiness. Because I've heard him say to Rogan, you wouldn't want to be in my head, it's so painful. Mm-hmm. But Rogan didn't ask more about that. Sure.
0: I would love to know more about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. what is driving his online persona and that erratic behavior? What's, been, what's beneath that? What's behind that? What is the need that he's trying to fill by purchasing Twitter and becoming this sort of, um, uh, you know, trolly kind of edge Lord online? What is it doing? It's then? not befitting a man of his stature who has, you know, really revolutionized industry. And had he not purchased Twitter and kind of become addicted to, you know, what he's doing online, um, we would just be in absolute reverence of this guy. And he would have had a lot more time to pursue, you know, changing the world in in meaningful and positive ways. And hanging out with his kids, his uh, nine he kids has, or something? Ten or three? has a lot of kids, doesn't he? Does yeah, he not I don't know. does he care? I don't know. I don't I've never I've never met him. That's I why I want to know. What about you? Know. Who do you want to have on? Um Yeah, that would be one I've never seen that someone be... have a
1: conversation with Elon that I want to have. Mm-hmm. You would be great to have Elon on because you would go to the same places that I think I would wanna go.
0: Yeah, but I think you're somebody who you know, I listened to a lot of old interviews with you and you talk a lot about Elon. And I and I found myself wondering, I was listening to a couple of interviews over the last week that you had that you had done, maybe from like 2020, 2021. Hmm. And 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 yes, you have a lot of reverence for what he's achieved and and his kind of um unique way of thinking and problem solving. And I found myself wondering, like I wonder if he would say that in 2023. Well he's no longer on my wall. Mm.
1: Because I don't feel the same way about him. I have huge admiration for the way he thinks, his first principle mindset, which I've completely stolen, and all of these things relating to innovation, problem solving, and also kind of like getting a lot done. Yeah. But I can't relate to this guy that I see doing the memes and the kind of right wingy uh, some of the, the rhetoric. Mm-hmm. I just find it quite ugly and divisive. And I, I'm trying to
0: square it. Mm-hmm.
1: So I'd like to speak. There's to
0: a him. bit of a. There, I think a charitable interpretation would be that he enjoys being a chaos agent, and there's a little bit of um, uh, a little bit of the twinkle in his eye, like he knows that he's being provocative, and there's something thrilling about that for him. That would be the most charitable interpretation.
1: My guess is that he did the right thing for a long time, built this car company, built this rocket company um, Tesla changed the automotive industry. It was the catalyst for laws changing, proving that you could have fast, quote unquote, affordable electric cars. And then all the other manufacturers have followed suit. He's done really great stuff and he was attacked. And he was attacked relentlessly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And even the president of the United States, when talking about environmental issues, attacked him for And he's not s- invited subsidies. onto
0: their, their like panel of EV, you
1: know, auto manufacturers. The left or have
0: attacked mm-hmm. him relentlessly.
1: Yeah. So he's found a home, as he kind of puts it on his own words, on the right. And as a way to stop the attacks or take control over it, of all these journalists, he bought Twitter. Mm -hmm. That was the home of the attacks. It was kind of a way to stifle the attacks. Now, he finds himself over on the right, kind of. And, you know, I think think that was it. I think he couldn't comprehend that he was doing good for good reasons. Yet these people were trying to destroy him. And they were trying to destroy Mm -hmm. him.
0: Some of the stories. That yeah, that came makes out sense. That makes sense. I think on top of that, I would add. Uh, I think he's said publicly that he, you know, would have liked to have been a stand-up comic. So there's a part of him. There's a little comedian aspect to mm. that that I think he's trying to express. hundred <laughs> percent. I don't know. No, you're right. You are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. So who who's replaced Elon on that wall for you then? You haven't given me your answer yet. What? You haven't given me your answer. Yet. Ah. Let me think about that. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? Yeah. Or, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> people think that I have some answer, you know, at the ready, because I do get asked this question a lot. Yeah. And because I'm asked it so often, I should have an answer. <laughs> yeah. And I, Every time I get asked it, I can't think of anything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the truth is like, okay, the last... people that I'm interested in having, I get to have on. You have one interview left. Oh God. You, have, you get one interview. Uh-huh. Who do you have it with? There's so many variables that play into that because you can think of archetypal individuals who would be amazing, but then you think, yeah, but is that person really gonna open up to me? Am I gonna actually get anything interesting out of that person because they're so media savvy or because this is just another interview? Um, so I think the receptivity piece is really important. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like yeah, of it's not about getting the big name, it's about the person who is ready and it being the right time for that conversation. I think timing is super important. Where are they in their life? Are they in a place where they really want to open up in a way that they haven't before? And not everybody wants to do that. Most people don't, they have too much to lose so and true. not enough to gain. So that's what I think about. And I think about that more than I think about the person because I think every single person could deliver the, the, the best podcast I've ever done. And yeah, exactly. And it, for me, when people say to you, who's your favorite guest, blah, 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 even she could that, right? Yeah, yeah. And I was asked that in in the hallway out here just before coming in. And I said what I always say, which is like, it's very difficult to choose, but I will say this, and I'm curious how this lands for you. I'm still dodging here, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but um, I'm let your I'll up. get to it. <laughs> uh, uh, for me, the most meaningful guests have been relatively anonymous people, maybe not totally anonymous, but not like big names, but people who just come in and they have the most amazing story and they tell it with such um, earnestness and pathos and integrity and honesty and vulnerability that it ends up touching people in ways you couldn't have expected. And in turn, because of the scale of the podcast, it ends up impacting their life in a way they didn't Mm -hmm. anticipate and changing the trajectory of what they're doing. And, and, and impacting people out in the world in a very meaningful way. And so those tend to be the most personally meaningful and gratifying guests to have on. And they're not ones that you would know their names necessarily. Because you so know, I'm always looking for those people. You
1: help that person get the credit they deserve.
0: Sure, you, get, you have the privilege of shining a light on somebody who is deserving of that attention, who otherwise might never have received it. Mm. So, as fun as it is to have shiny people on the podcast, the real value for me is in finding those nuggets, you know, that are hidden under the rocks and maybe living between the crevices and unearthing them and, and pushing them out in front and saying, share.
1: I mean, I couldn't add another word to what you just mm-hmm. said. If I had to add a different, a, a different point, my second favorite, Type of guest. I mean, that's definitely it. We say this all the time, but my second favorite is when you think you know someone because they've been in the public eye and they've presented a certain image. We had a guy on called Jimmy Carr mm. and he's a comedian that's known for just one-liners. They're usually kind of like filthy one-liners. And he walked in that day and he was this completely different person, this deep philosophical guy that spent the whole two hours talking about what happiness truly is. And it shocked me. It shocked our viewers, and it's um, it was one of the best performing conversations. Mm. A totally different individual to the one you know. Yeah, that felt really worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: yeah, but that's that's like lightning striking. You, yeah, know I mean? you yeah, can't you come, manufacture nah, that in somebody. Nah. Like it takes two people, and that like it goes back to what I was saying about timing. Yeah, that person was in the right mindset at the right time in their life, where they were willing to share something that perhaps even weeks earlier, they would have been too afraid to. And something about the, the environment that you're cultivating and creating that is conducive to those types of conversations. You have to set a tone um, and, and create a space where somebody feels safe doing that. And sometimes it's hard, look, we're in here, there's cameras, there's lights, mm. you're comfortable, I'm comfortable doing this, not everybody is. How can you transcend that and get past that so that the person um, can be in that, in that flow state to allow that honesty to come forth. I wish I knew. Mm-hmm. I had a really
1: interesting conversation with Brian Johnson on my podcast, you know, Brian Johnson.
0: I've never met him in person. We've had emails and I know a lot about him and oh, you... I don't wanna step on your words, mm. but I know I have, I have lots of friends who know him. And I think what's interesting about him is on the surface, looking in, you would think, well, this guy's a weirdo. Like he, uh, you know, he's lost his mind or his priorities are off. But every single person I know that's spent any time with him has found him to be incredibly genuine, humble, curious, and and well intentioned with integrity in what he's doing. And I think it's cool that he's out there doing that. Somebody needs to, right? So he's like this canary in a coal mine who's mm. testing all of these things for us. So anyway, I, no, but You've
1: nailed it. It's, it. My team was saying to me before he arrived at the studio, um, oh God, what do you think of him? And like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And Will out there actually apologized. I'm, I'm sure Will won't mind yeah. me saying this. Will said to me, kept saying to me, like, what do you think of that Brian guy, God, you know? And my other team members were going, what do you think of that Brian guy? And I remember saying to my team, I've not met him yet.
0: I, I've, I don't know yet. Yeah, You can read a page six or a Daily Mail I'm article. Inter- yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm not
1: interested in that stuff. Brian sat in front of me and presented himself for two to three hours. And in that conversation, I reserved my judgment and learned about Brian. At the end of the conversation, he said something to me, which is the biggest compliment any guest has ever given me. He goes, Steve, I go around and I do lots of these interviews. And I'm very well attuned to little micro expressions or micro questions that, have, that are laced with a kernel of judgment. He goes, this last sentence he says in my podcast, you did none of that. And it was the best compliment a guest has ever given me because it really mattered to me that someone who is clearly so prejudged before they walk in a room to do an mm. interview, felt that, felt safe in my environment, that I, there was no ounce of judgment and it was all curiosity. And I almost got emotional, I almost get emotional thinking about it now when he said that because that matters so much to me. Um, and I think that's part of it is like taking people as, not as the, the headlines or the research notes say, but as the person you meet and understanding that they are human, they want love, they want all the things that I want at the most fundamental level. Um, mm-hmm. And if you, I think if you meet them on that level, then you
0: can, you can go to interesting places. Yeah, well, I think that's more profound than how to approach a podcast conversation, because if you can bring that level of presence, compassion, understanding and non-judgment to your daily interactions yeah. with your friends, your family, your coworkers, people you meet on the street, uh, you will have that same experience. I struggle not, with that. Right? Yeah, me too. It's funny, I'm me good too. at doing that on podcast, you know? but yeah, I'm, not, I'm not good at my own life. With well, the cameras and the lights are on, you know, it's like, it's all performance <laughs> yeah. and good, right? Yeah. Can you do that when you're stuck in traffic or with the grocery clerk when you're late? You know, Those are the real moments. I struggle
1: with it, particularly with people close to me in my life. Where I struggled to apply the same level of empathy to the circumstances that might have made them the way they are, mm. and I and I'm trying to fight with logic to change them.
0: Right. Well, the model might be: can you bring that beginner's mind to each of those exchanges? Oh, I wish. Right? Easy. Right.
1: I wish. Uh, I beat myself up about it quite often, actually, that mm. I'm not able to apply myself in the way I'd like to, to those situations. Mm-hmm. Where someone I love in my life is exhibiting recurring behaviors that are self-destructive and I don't approach it with enough empathy, I approach it with like... Problem solving. Yeah, I need to fix you. Mm-hmm. How can I fix you? Yeah. And, I know, and it's How's not that? working. How's that work out? It's not worked. <laughs> we're eight, you know, yeah. we're eight, nine years in with some yeah, of my, yeah. one, one person in particular, yeah. and I've made, I've made, I've probably made, if, if anything, I might have made things worse. Mm. I think about that too, I think, The way I've approached the situation might be the opposite medicine or antidote to what they need. They might need someone just to sit in the mud with them, Mm -hmm. as Simon says.
0: Usually they do, right? I think it's, my my wife would call it robbing people of their divine moment. Ooh. If you're trying to fix it, if you're trying to intervene, you're interrupting a process of learning and experience for that person that perhaps they're better off experiencing without your involvement.
1: So you get out the mud or you just sit No, in the you mud
0: support and... and you listen and you say, I believe in you to find a solution for yourself and I'm here for you rather than here's what you need to do. Well, oh, that's
1: so hard, especially for someone that has the bias towards thinking about data and solutions mm-hmm. and evidence and patterns and, you know, something I really struggle with. And I, I wanna be better because I think I'd have richer, more authentic, deeper relationships if I was able to do that more often.
0: All right, well, we got to wrap it up here, but what have we learned? we learned that you're gonna be doing, um, you're gonna go back to your original format and do some monologuing. That's a promise before the end of the year. Did we get an agreement that you're gonna begin a meditation practice? We're not so sure on that one. I didn't think we got the agreement, but I think we... we- We're a little shy of that. Something needs we're to We're thinking about it. I need to go on a meditation retreat. One of yeah. your retreats, you do this on your retreats? Uh, we do, yeah. When are they? Uh, I do the if one? we're doing another one. I'll let oh, you God. know. Please let me know. You're in Bali all the time. You, you can't a throw a stone without hitting a <laughs> yeah, meditation I retreat. Know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so we have that, what else are we? Uh, oh, um, yeah, how are we, how are we thinking about the, the transcendent and the divine? We're planting that seed in you, Steven. What's the first step? For me. I can't tell you that. That would be me robbing you of your divine your divine path. You have to figure that out for yourself. I'll keep my eyes open. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In the meantime, while your eyes are open, uh, everybody's eyes should be directed to the Diary of a CEO podcast and the new book of the same name. Um, again, you did... Really a wonderful job with this book. Thank you. Um, Even if you have no interest in business, it's really a primer for how to think about your own life, how to prioritize your time, your resources, your attention. And if nothing else, it allows you to see the world more clearly in the way that some of your favorite companies operate to manipulate you, hijack your attention and garner your business. Is there anything else? What is the main idea you want people to take away? You've from nailed this it. Book?
1: You've nailed it. Mm-hmm. I have nothing more to add. And thank you so much for inviting me onto your platform. You're someone that I've watched for many, many years. And there's so much about you that I admire that I realize I will never, I will never get mm-hmm. to. And again, maybe this is the distinction between aspiration and admiration or something, but there's so much about the way you conduct yourself, the way you hold yourself, your values and your integrity that I think I'm, I'm still a little bit short on, but I aspire to get there. And it's it's indescribable. I don't even know how I pointed it, but it's the way in which you carry yourself and the clarity in, of your intentions and how I experience that, that I would love to replicate someday. I'll get closer to. So you're a big role model for me in that regard, and that's why spending time with you recording, but also when we went to watch Manchester mm-hmm. United lose uh, <laughs> in London yeah. was really wonderful because um, vicariously, it's it, I, I, it's contagious. I can part of it is sort of impressed upon me. So I, I thank you for that. I thank you for inviting me onto your show because it is one of the legendary shows out there. And so it's an honor.
0: I really, uh, I, I appreciate that. That 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 means a lot, Steven, it really does. Um, it touches me that you would say that my my kind of reflexive reaction to that is to deflect, <laughs> and also make sure that you understand that I'm just riddled with character defects. So no, whatever did. I'm emanating, yeah. please understand that I'm uh, you know my own worst enemy most of the time. But um, that means a lot. You know, I've I've been watching you for quite some time, um, and how you show up in public life, and I think it's incredibly admirable and and impactful. The integrity and the thoughtfulness that you put into um, what you're sharing, why you're sharing it, and how you're sharing it. Particularly in contrast to the sort of entrepreneurship, CEO wealth porn of social media, of people getting out of you know sports cars and walking onto private jets, et cetera. I mean, that's what we're attuned to. And you're modeling something very different. And, and the fact that you have become this powerful role model for an entire new generation of entrepreneurs, business people, um, and just people who are of influence in the world, I think is, um, is, is very meaningful. And I wish there were more people out there like you. And the fact that when I came and did your show, which I enjoyed tremendously, you then, extended an invitation for me and, and my kid to join you at a Manchester United game. And I got to spend a whole afternoon with you was an incredibly kind um, gesture that uh, I will not forget. I really appreciate, appreciate what you do and, and how you do it.
1: Thank you, Rich. Yeah. I don't know what Cheers. else to say, thank you.
0: Yeah, so thank everybody so check much. out Diary of a CEO podcast book at Steven on social, at Steven Bartlett on Instagram though steven Anywhere on instagram else? and then Stephen bartlett instagram. on twitter yeah yeah okay i had it reversed yeah and either way he's easy to find he's yeah. capable right <laughs> um and next time you come to la uh please let's try to hang out a little bit
1: i look forward to it Cheers. thank you so much it's an honor yeah really you. peace
0: Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo, with additional audio engineering by Cale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis, with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg, graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Daniel Solis, as well as Dan Drake. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants, namaste.